I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland and joining me are... Mark Boyle in Syria in the UK and Joe Byrne in Kildare, Ireland. And in today's episode we'll be talking about Svalbard, a small polar archipelago off the northern coast of Norway. Svalbard is by far the most northerly place we've covered on the show, lying roughly midway between continental Norway and the North Pole, around 580 miles or 930 kilometers north of Tromsø, Norway. The archipelago consists of nine main islands, the main island being Spitsbergen, which makes up over half the land area. Svalbard has a total land area of around 24,000 square miles or 62,000 square kilometers, make it similar in size to Sri Lanka or the US state of West Virginia. There are only around 2,500 permanent residents here, most of whom live in the main city of Longyearbyen. First settled as an Arctic whaling base in the 17th century, the islands later saw the establishment of coal mining towns, but in recent years Svalbard's main economic lifeline has been tourism and Arctic research, both of which have boomed recently. Due to its extreme northern latitude in the summer, the sun does not set on Svalbard for four months, while in the winter the archipelago goes weeks without any sunlight at all. Svalbard is also notable for being home to the World Seed Bank, while as of 2012, all residents must carry a gun while traveling outside of an established settlement in case they encounter one of the many polar bears that live nearby. This is our last episode of season four. Thank you for sticking with us through four full seasons of, uh, of the show. This is also a Patreon nominated episode. So our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast had a chance earlier this year to vote on our final episode of the season. One of our patrons, John Fitzpatrick, suggested Svalbard, and that uh, that came out on top. So uh, thanks very much to John and everybody who voted. Thanks, John. Thank you. So Svalbard, uh, that's what we're talking about today. We got lucky. Not that there were any bad suggestions. We did. This is a really, really interesting place. I, I think we're stacked in terms of good ideas for, for next season, to be honest. But, but this is a very cool option. Uh, it is a very cool option. So do you guys want to talk about something that you're looking forward to talking about this episode? You just mentioned the thing i'm most looking forward to luke um yeah. like i've been keen for us to do this ever since i i heard a, an episode of a, another podcast i think it was endless thread and 99 percent invisible both talked about the the seed vault in the arctic so mm. lots of seeds buried in the permafrost essentially there is a uh, a backup hard disk of the Earth's crop diversity, and that's cool. Yeah, it's it's home to, I think, thousands of different species of different plant seeds and stuff. And Mark, what about yourself? I guess one of the things I'm interested to talk about is something discovered by... There's a lot of kind of dispute of who discovered Svalbard, but the, a person, a person who definitely discovered it at one point, also went on to discover 
a, a an Arctic phenomena, uh, which I've never heard of before, and also has a really cool name. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. Ooh, okay. I think I might know what that is. And if, mm. if it's what I think it is, it's really yeah. awesome. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about the Svalbard Treaty. Love a good treaty. Which makes Svalbard, I believe, the only place in the world that is entirely visa-free. So technically anybody can go live in Svalbard, mm. although it, it is a bit more difficult than it would sound. So Joe, I, be- I believe you talked to a guest for this episode. Yes. Yes. So um, one other great thing about us doing Svalbard is I didn't have to go very far to find someone who has some knowledge of the place. Mm. Um, I and I was fortunate enough to find uh, a guest in, in my very close to home in, in the form of my housemate where I'm living at the moment. Very nice. So I was able to interview her. She told us lots of interesting things. And uh, you'll hear her voice popping in and out of the episode as we go. Well, I suppose I'll just ask you to introduce yourself. I'm Dr. Kieran McDonough. I am a postdoctoral researcher in history at the National University of Ireland in Galway. And I work on 19th century reinterpretations of medieval source material, mostly Ireland, but I also expand my view to other places in Europe. So you've actually been to this um, very remote place. I have attended two academic conferences in Svalbard. The first was in 2017 and the second one I was an organiser for in 2019. So could you tell us about how you get to Svalbard? It's easier than it sounds. You can get a direct flight from Oslo or you can have an indirect flight where you change planes in Tromsø in in the very northern tip of Norway. I was there both times in January, so in the middle of the polar night. So you have landed in a period, well, you've taken off from a period of, I suppose, a shortened day in Oslo, but the sun has risen. And you've landed in a place, and particularly in the middle of January, where the sun set on the 11th of November, and it has not been seen since. Wow. Wow. Would you typically have clear skies or would the northern lights be visible? Is anything like that uh, a feature of Svalbard? Absolutely. It's slightly far too north of the band where the lights are more typical. That's generally around Tromsø, kind of the lower band of Alaska. But you can definitely see the northern lights. And one of the benefits of 24 hours of darkness is that you're not waiting for the sun to set so you can see them better. So I've seen them at 1 p.m., and, you know, you, there's always a chance that you might see them. Could you give us a general overview of, say, the landscape that you, you encounter? Both times I have been in Longyearbyen, which is the largest and most northerly permanent settlement in the world. It also has lots of claims. It has the most northerly supermarket. It has the most northerly cinema. It has the most northerly kindergarten. And when you fly in, you fly in quite a bit over the island of Spitsbergen, which is the largest island in the Svalbard Peninsula. And you realise that it was very aptly named Spitsbergen, in that you're surrounded by mountains. That's Spiky Mountains, is that? that? Spiky Mountains, as the name translates. The town of Longyearbyen sits in the Longyear Valley, so it's a very long strip in between two mountains. There's a river that runs through it, the Longyear River, which leads up to the Longyear Glacier. And in front of you is the Advent Fjord, which was a corruption of the um, name Adventure Fjord, which was named after one of the Hull whaling ships. 
And the other side of Advent Fjord is a mountain called Fjordfjell. It's kind of a big spiky mountain that has a little ridge back as well. And because the town is so actually narrow, it dominates the whole scene. So as you're walking, it kind of towers over the town and that's kind of pretty much a feature of Longyearbyen. There's pretty much kind of only one major road that goes through the town. Longyearbyen calls itself the town where the streets have no name. <laughs> and it's very true. I mean, all the houses are numbered and people navigate around with the, the numbered houses. Barentsburg is the second largest settlement on Svalbard, a permanent settlement populated mostly by Russian and Ukrainians. And there's about 450 people who live in this very Russian-style town with Orthodox churches decorated in a very ornate Russian style. And how do you get from town to town? There are no roads. <laughs> so for Pyramiden, for example, you can take a boat in the summer or in the winter. The ocean is ice. So it is an eight-hour snowmobile tour. Pyramiden was a Soviet settlement that was uh, abandoned. It has the world's most northerly statue of Vladimir Lenin. And about four people lived there in the winter and eight in the summer. It's now very much a tourist attraction. Great. Well, good to know uh, my Lenin needs can be met above the Arctic Circle. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so yeah, thanks to uh, Kieran for giving us that overview. Uh, as Joe mentioned, you will hear her voice popping back in uh, throughout this episode. And, and Luke, she's not the only person I know who's been there. I, I met someone else in, in Zurich once who, who'd, who'd worked there as a researcher. And, and we might, if we're lucky, we're going to have some photos from uh, Roxana Kramer on the website as well, which she took during her time above the Arctic Circle uh, doing research nice Svalbard. So there is lots of people go up there, particularly from... Is, is, it, is it lots of people or lots know, of people that Europe. you know? <laughs> Seems to, be, seems to be the yeah, binding factor. I, believe, I, I imagine it's it's because you run in these scientific yeah. circles, Joe. Might have something to do yeah. with it, maybe. It's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but it's uh, it's good good for us for this episode for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thanks to Roxana and to Kieran for their contributions to the episode. Mark, I think you're going to kick us off with some early history, right? Sure. Um, so <laughs> there 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 isn't any. Kind of. I mean, there's, oh, there's, great. there's probably <laughs> not no only didn't the rest of down, there was nobody to do it. Let, let's talk about uh, cold, hard stones. In, in my head, when I was kind of thinking of it, I, I was thinking, you know, the far north of Norway, Tromso, something like that. And then just like... Uh, you think that's already really far north. And that's right? insanely far north. And then I thought yes. that there's going to be like a little like strip of, of sea and then Svalbard. That's where it was in my head. And then I kind of pulled no. it up on like Google Maps. And I was just like scrolling upwards and upwards. Just kept going. And like, I mean, what I was looking at was kind of a, a, a Mercator a kind of rectangular map. And I, it makes it kind of hard to see where it is in the world then. So I actually have um, a, a sort of rather cheap globe uh, that I, I leave around my, my living room to start kind of witty, erudite conversations with my one-year-old. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I then kind of look for, look for Svalbard in it. And it's actually covered by the, like, the axle, the top axle of the globe. Oh, it's, right, it's, yeah, the, the sort of vinyl thing on the top, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that far north that they basically viewed that space as replaceable with a little little plastic cap. That's just going to give an idea of, of, of like, what we're dealing with. The, the, the landmass itself, the, the bedrock is from the pre 
Cambrian period. So we're talking hundreds of millions uh, of years ago. And the, the rock itself has just kind of shifted and metamorphosized over such a long period that actually there aren't really a lot of even very old fossils there. The rocks have just kind of shifted around so much that it's, it's essentially kind of destroyed anything that might have been encased within it. You kind of go to the period around the dinosaurs, the Cretaceous period. The northwest corner of Europe was torn from Greenland, uh, and this tear essentially creates the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, wow. Oh, my. Spitsbergen, uh, which is kind of the main island of Svalbard, it folded up to form lots and lots of mountains. So before that, as, as far as I know, it was kind of rather flat and plat- plateauish uh, but this kind of turned into much more spiky mountain type spiky thing spiky mountains it went from around the latitude of northern france up to kind of where it is closer to today more northern more northern norway and the climate was temperate and humid rocks from from this period as opposed to much earlier are rich in sea fossils Going forward, uh, there's a lot of swamps, and the swamps in in time will create coal, which we'll we'll hear more about later. Mm, we shall. Just one of the many things that were taken out of uh, yeah. Svalbard on mass. Uh, yeah, to, to kind of people go there. Whatever you take do, mean and then take leave. all the stuff. Uh, yeah. But but surely the coal is the most sentient and sensitive of all of the things they've they've uh, exploited from Svalbard, guys. Surely, right? Yes. So relatively recently, there was actually quite a lot of volcanic eruptions there 70,000 years ago. There's still some hot springs, as far as I'm aware, which kind of shows how tectonically volatile uh, the area used Mm. to be. And there was lots and lots of ice ages, as you would expect being this far north. uh, And that has also kind of impacted the landscape, cutting away the rock. So it's actually quite diverse in terms of fjords, valleys, etc. The longest fjord is apparently 108 kilometers. It's called Widefjorden, which I assume means big fjord. Um, so also the glaciers are pretty enormous, That the largest being 8,412 square kilometers. So lots of glaciers, lots of kind of ice agey type stuff, but in modern day, but no people or anything even close to people yet. It might be worth mentioning the, the climate's warmer than you'd think because of the Gulf Stream. Yeah. So it is like it's really cold, but considering it's it's, you know, at the latitude of the very top of Greenland, and as you say, you know, replaceable by a piece of plastic on a globe, it, you know, it, it can be mm. above zero, like it can be five or six degrees in summer, which is, is surprising. That actually tracks with the pharaohs as well, if you recall, even though the pharaohs are much yeah. further south, yeah. but like they're also yeah. super exposed and you expect them to be absolutely really really brutal but you know, because of that they're they're actually relatively temperate mm-hmm. so in terms of people uh there there is this research paper that's often quoted from 1970 by christiansen and simonson where they they found some rocks and they're like rocks equals stone age settlements i think our guest has something to say on that yes she did indeed so i asked her if she would like to talk to us about any pre-modern claims she was aware of to having visited svalbard no one, as you mentioned, appears to have been there before the early modern period. There were some disputed claims where some archaeologists in the 1970s thought that they had found a Stone Age settlement. However, the flints that they dug up did not show any signs of having been worked and appeared to be completely naturally formed. So that theory was very quickly disbanded. Most claims about any pre-modern trips to Svalbard are based on an entry in both the Icelandic Annals and the Book of Settlements, the Landaumabok. 
in which for the year 1194, um, the entry says Fundin. Svalbardi has been translated as the cold rim, the cold shores, the cold coast. And that's the only entry in the Lunnarmobok. It says that it is four days sailing north of Iceland. This has kind of led to a lot of disputes as to where was Svalbardi? And when, you, when the name means the cold place or the cold shores, it could be anywhere. It could be Eastern Greenland. It could be the island of Jan Mayen, which is frequently lumped in with Svalbard in you know, Norwegian administrative districts. Or you know, it could also simply just be pack ice that has, you know, people ended up landing on the pack ice. So there has never been any archaeological evidence to suggest permanent or even temporary settlements on Svalbard by the Vikings. Norway's claims to have had medieval occupation in Svalbard before the early modern periods are based on one reference in some medieval Icelandic documents. And basically, they expanded this to create a mythology. So the only other thing I'll mention is the kind of uncertainty around a group called the Pomors. Uh, they're, they're a Russian group, fishermen from the kind of far north of Russia. The name means by sea, Pamara. Oh, right. Okay, very good. Hmm. And it, it, it fits because they, they're essentially kind of on the coast of a, one of the far northern bays and they would kind of travel pretty freely within this area. And a view that was expanded quite a lot kind of towards the end of the 19th century was that, what do you mean this was discovered by X? The Russians have been there for ages. Uh, and it was kind of part of a, a kind of a political climate of countries debating who has the most claim on Svalbard. So you can kind of take it with a bit of a pinch of salt and there's not really any you know, evidence to corroborate it. But there's also no evidence to uh, undermine it, uh, hopefully. So uh, the, the, the word is still out there. But really, you know, the kind of the first definitive account of somebody going to Svalbard is Willem Behrens, mm-hmm. uh, who is a Dutch explorer, or I guess probably Willem Behrens, uh, in June 1596. Uh, and he was looking for uh, a route potentially to Asia at the time. In 1596, which is his third voyage uh, in the area, he sighted uh, Spitsbergen. But he didn't really, you know, explore it in any significant way. It was just kind of a, a, a thing that he discovered. Uh, and he continued on to a really enormous uh, island, which I had never heard of, called Novaya Zamlaya. New Island. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> when their ship became trapped in the ice. And they had to winter there. And that's where they discovered what was called the Novaya Zemlaya effect. Mm-hmm. Which is bonkers. Yeah, it's this um, effect of kind of the refraction off of the atmosphere. And the atmosphere being quite different at that latitude. And essentially, it means mm. that the, the light from the sun bends through the air so that you can see the sun even when it's below the horizon. Yep. Even when the earth is in the way the air is bending the beam of light across the arc of the air so you can still see it. And apparently it also can make it look uh, like really weird. Like it can make the sun look like a box and these kind of Mm -hmm. like strips of light, but with like spaces in between them as well, all based on the kind of the refraction of the sunlight through the atmosphere. So they discovered this for the first people potentially to see this, certainly the first record it. So no, it's been 
relevant part of a, a spirituality among sort of Arctic peoples, I think, in, in North America for a long time before that. Oh, okay. First Nations people had an awareness of in a mythological sense, but, you know, first Europeans, should we yeah, say, to record first, first white folk, then. This American Life had an episode called Things I Mean to Know that mentions some interesting stuff about that that uh, effect. So we can drop a link to check, that in the show check, notes. Check, check that out. Hmm. Anyway, so their time in Avizimlaya was an awful mess. Um, they almost died from the cold, obviously enough, from the scurvy, as was the style at the time. They almost uh, suffered carbon monoxide poisoning because they were so cold, they actually blocked up the chimney to their tent. Nice. And they were so hungry, they ate a polar bear's liver. Ooh. Oh, that's not a good idea. That's Don't the do one that. thing I know about polar bears is... Yeah. That allowed them to document... Uh, it documented the first case of hypervitamintosis A. So they, they had vitamin a, yeah. too much vitamin A and their bodies went mental, basically. Yeah, you, right. you shouldn't eat the livers of apex predators because they've no. eaten everything all else. The other predators. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that's, that's why the things you eat are generally not predators. There's a mm. pattern there. So they left after they were able to kind of break out the ice. They, they left in these kind of small uncovered boats. And as I recall, I think 17 of them made it out, barren did not and quite soon the account of their their journey was made famous by the account of uh, Gerrit de Veer who, who was on the voyage and even though they were all Dutch they didn't actually make any claim to the islands uh, King the uh, King Christian IV of Denmark and Norway he kind of claimed it when he found out about it and uh, England were also a little bit keen to claim it but uh, I think they had erroneously thought they'd been there uh, before so that's it uh, It's it's been discovered kind of but really just by by eyeball no one's really explored it or spent any time there yet sure so humans coming to this place en masse had a huge effect on what Svalbard sounded like in a way that will become pretty apparent after the next section but I thought this might be a nice place to put in the sound of the sea sure before human activity came along and changed it all So, Joe, you want to tell us about sort of the first proper settlers in uh, Svalbard then? In the early 1600s, people started hunting in and around what we now call the Svalbard Archipelago. In particular, the first hunting expeditions were to Björnöje, or Bear Island, which I'm going to call it from now on, because my Norwegian pronunciations are grim. Yeah, I think that's the best way to go. Um, Which was named after a swimming polar bear that was spotted there. So polar, polar bears are a thing. It's the southernmost island of the archipelago, hence the first place that got hunted. And people went there to hunt walrus. So one example was um, Stephen Barrett, who was master of various ships. He went he went there uh, a few times. Uh, he called it Cherry Island because he was funded by a guy called Cherry, which is nice of him. And in July 1604, they reported hunting 100 walrus with fouling rifles and muskets, so just, you know, whatever guns they had lying around and just shot all the walrus they could see. In the subsequent summers, they had improved their hunting methods to include harpooning, 
uh, and they got really, really good at hunting walrus to the extent that there was basically a, a local extinction of walrus within a few years. Right. Yeah, and seabird eggs were also harvested here until the 70s. So, um, right. walrus, not so much, but, but people like taking stuff for Svalbard. And there's no one to tell you to stop, I suppose. That's the other thing. Hmm. It's the, the magic of Svalbard. No one's there to tell you mm-hmm. to stop doing whatever crazy stuff you're Nobody's doing. Nobody's there, period, I guess. Like. Yeah. Uh, well, that's changing over the course yeah. of the 1600s. Henry Hudson, uh, whose name might sound familiar to you, he explored the islands in 1607, and he was hired by the Muscovy Company to try and find uh, and basically a northeast passage to Cathay, in inverted commas, okay. which is what? China was called at the time, yeah. I think. So the Muscovy Company was kind of a precursor of sort of the East India Companies and the West India Companies, that sort of idea of, a, of a, an exploring company. Yeah. I think the Muscovy Company was the first one of these, at least the first English one of these, trying to find trade routes and, and new markets. They were trying to find routes to Russia and routes to China. Hudson was employed by them. He was later employed by the Dutch to explore what would become New York. And he, he, he sailed up a big river uh, there, mm. which bears his name. The Dutch River. So, the Hudson River. Wait, what? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so he spotted a place he called New Land uh, and the Great Indraft, which is now known as East Fjorden, which is uh, the big inlet where Longyearbyen and a few other settlements are, are now. And he reported there being lots of whales around Unluckily for the whales. Right. In 1609, the Muscovy Company claimed Bear Island for the English crown. Uh, they erroneously said that their founder, Lord Willoughby, had discovered it in the 1550s. He hadn't, but when did that ever matter? Oh, that guy, yeah. They continued to further exploit the archipelago. Jonas Poole, he'd done a few Bear Island trips and was also a settler at Jamestown, Virginia. In one of his spare summers, he wasn't killing Wallaces. In 1610, Jonas Poole spent three months from May to August exploring Spitsbergen, which is the longest anyone had ever spent poking around uh, Spitsbergen, which is the biggest island of what we now call the Svalbard Archipelago, um, and the one most frequently explored at this point. So I think I think Behrens has spent about a, like a couple of weeks, and Hudson has spent maybe a month, and so... Poole was really responsible for really mapping various places, naming various places, mm. and um, and he reported huge stores of whales. But interesting observation: he didn't attempt to hunt them because he reckoned only Basques knew how to do that. Only Basques, as in yeah. Basque people. Yeah, yeah. Basque peoples. You Which might is... remember from our Newfoundland episode. Oh yeah, that, that the Basques were secretly yeah. going off and fishing all kinds of things, cod and. And various... Um, and they knew whaling, apparently. They knew whaling. So they seem to have been the go-to experts on whaling during this yep. era. Um, and everyone didn't even bother trying without a Basque sailor on board. Which seems a bit... I mean, it, it seems really strange that, like, you know, given that this is like a primarily Arctic kind mm-hmm. of pursuit, you know? Well... That you would get somebody from Spain, essentially, to, to, to come and... Careful now. Come up to the... Someone from know. the Iberian Peninsula, Luke. Sure, fair enough. Yeah, the, the, the climate doesn't really doesn't really work. But I mean, like, in, in, in the same way, like, if I told you, Luke, to go off and do a bit of whaling, you kind of look at me a bit awkwardly and kind of go... Uh, <laughs> or, like, I'll fling a chair at them or something. Like, they're, they're pretty intimidating. Like, uh, you need to have a plan if you're, if you're, your intent is to kind of go off and kill a couple of hundred whales. For sure. And I guess you'd kind of... You'd gravitate to the, the only people you know who might have done a bit of whale killing in the past. 
like I'd say, they're terrifying creatures to consider attacking. The Basques? Like, I mean, oh, yeah. These, yeah. No, <laughs> the whales. <laughs> yeah. All those olives. Gi- giant, giants. Uh, and I suppose you, you, you mentioned they were the only people who knew how to do this. Yeah. Did you know the word harpoon comes from a Basque word? Mm, okay. I don't know that. So uh, I, I didn't realize there like, there's obviously Basque loan words in English, but that's one of them. Right. And I didn't know that until I started reading about whaling. It's been a fun, fun week. Mm-hmm. Um, so what followed would be basically, I would say, a horrendous century or two for the bowhead whale, Baliana mysticitus. Uh, what what are we talking name. size-wise with the bowhead? I have a measurement here from a guy called William Scoresby Jr., who pops up in my section, but I'll just address your question there now. The longest bowhead he measured was uh, 17.7 meters or 58 feet long. Okay. Um, but the longest measurement he'd ever heard of was about 20 meters or 67 feet long caught uh, near Greenland. Wow. Okay. So really sizable, big. Sizable creatures, yes. And they have the largest mouth of any animal. A third of their body length is mouth. Yeah. Oh, there was wow. called a baleen whale where they have those kind of uh, yeah. fine kind of teeth that sift the ocean and i believe they are um the the bowhead whale i believe are, are one of the most blubber rich species of whale which is uh, you know essentially what you're after is the blubber because they they boil it down into into oil right yeah so they have a lot of blubber and they float when they're dead probably because of that but it makes mm. them both valuable oh, as a commodity easy and to easy to yeah. easier to easier to kill and 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 harvest than yeah. a lot of other whales and um, they also have Massive triangular skulls they used to break through ice. So there's apparently oh, wow. uh, Inupac reports of them breaking through, I think, like 30 inches of ice or something like that. Wow. Great, crazy, crazy strong skull. Probably um, why they're they're so full of blubber, I guess, if they're, if they're yeah, breaking they, through they ice in, that thick. In the yeah. Arctic. Like, and they can live up to 200 years. Um, mm. so Not in this that. era, perhaps. Not around Svalbard. Yeah. Studies of whales today, so... We, we were kind of discussing this before we came in air, but like the demand for for whaling came from the Industrial Revolution, essentially, that this is the primary source of oil. Like, you know, yeah. Fossil fuel oil was not yet discovered, I don't think. Definitely not widespread. Not, not, in, any, yeah. not in any large quantity, anyway. And, and yeah, so yeah. most oil for oil lamps and and lubrication yeah. and all that was coming from, from animals, from pretty intelligent uh, and social mammals that we nearly wiped out um, in a lot of places yeah it's a really fascinating thought to think of people going around hunting you know fuel fuel yeah is is really is a really bizarre concept but that's exactly what was going on right now yeah mm. at this time so in addition to that the the baleen the sort of the teeth mm-hmm. um filter were used in in whalebone it's the what whalebone in corsets and in yeah parasols was as a very sturdy but oh, flexible right. material i have a quote here i might drop it in seeing as we're on this topic from a guy called eric j dolan from a book called leviathan the history of whaling in america now obviously we're not talking about america right now but some of the same species yeah so he says american whale oil lit the world it was used in the production of soaps textiles leather paint and varnishes it lubricated the tools and machines that drove the Industrial Revolution. The baleen cut from the mouths of whales shaped the course of feminine fashion by putting the hoop in hooped skirts <laughs> and giving form to the stomach tightening and chest crushing corsets. Spermaceti, the waxy substance from the heads of sperm whales, produced the brightest and cleanest burning candles the world had ever known. 
while ambergris, the byproduct of irritation in a uh, sperm whale's bowel, gave yeah. perfumes great staying power and was worth its weight in gold. Wow. So still yeah, is used ambergris as far as I know. I think so, yeah. Right. Um yeah, so Spitsbergen is kind of where that all began, like the American trade was later. Hmm. Uh, I mean, given America's only really been settled at this point. Sure. And you can't start reading about whaling in general without Spitsbergen popping up towards the start of any story involving yep. European or, or Atlantic whale trade. Mm. And the, an interesting study you came across looked at the genetic diversity in the materials found in, you know, corsets and toys and various other whale products from the, from the 1600s and the whale population around Svalbard today. And there's been a massive loss in genetic diversity as a result of this evolutionary bottleneck caused by the hunting that would follow. So back to the people who were behind this uh, this development in Svalbard's history. 1611, our man Barrett, who we saw earlier killing all the walruses, he was sent in charge of the Mary Margaret, along with Thomas Edge aboard. And Jonas Poole was sent in another ship called the Elizabeth, along with six Basques. So they got their Basques hired them and brought them along to teach everyone how to how to take part in this bloody business. Mm-hmm. Kill the whales good. The ships were separated, uh, which I don't think was the original plan, but the Elizabeth went off exploring and left the Mary Margaret to do some whaling. And um, it seems that it ran into some pack ice or some, some ice and foul sound and was, was wrecked. And some sailors were sent off to find the Elizabeth in a boat, I suppose, which sounds terrifying. Just kind of set out into the Atlantic and hope for the best. Uh, So they found them around Bear Island hanging out. And uh, it turns out everyone, when when the Elizabeth got to Foul Sound, they found that a a ship from Hull, uh, an interloper ship, so I think a non-company ship that was doing a bit of on-the-sly whaling, captained by Thomas Marmaduke, which is an spectacular name, uh, he deposited them on the land. Poole tried to take all the men and the cargo on board onto the Elizabeth and overfilled it, not enough ballast in the hold, and it capsized, oh, nearly Jesus. killing Poole, who, uh, I quote, he said, his head was broke to the skull and my brow that one might see the bare bones, uh. and by my ear I had a sore wound. Likewise, the ribs on my right side were all broken and sore bruised, and the collarbone on my left shoulder is broken. Besides, my back was so sore I could not suffer any man to touch it. So he was hit by beer barrels and stuff oh, as the ship capsized and wow. only barely escaped. I mean, that's is a very sort of polite way of describing what sound like really horrific injuries. <laughs> it sounds he's crushed. It's the sixteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. lightly crushed. Yeah, I think to, I think to 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 use one of your terms that you used in a previous episode, Mark, marmalized probably <laughs> pretty well. Marmaduke, indeed. Marmaduke, indeed, indeed. Well, he was. He, he was to be further marmalized when he asked Marmaduke for, for help. Yeah. And he wanted to bring all his men and stuff onto the uh, onto Marmaduke's ship and was uh, met by a load of pikes. But eventually some uh, money changed Marmaduke's mind and he brought everyone back to England. 1612 was a bit more successful for the, um, the Muscovy Company lads. Uh, they did, however, meet some Dutch and Spanish whalers who, who'd clearly heard the rumours of lots of whales and interlopers, including Marmaduke, again, were floating around. Uh, but there wasn't enough for everyone, as it were. I, I, a quote from Poole again. There lay an abundance of huge whales in the harbour about our ships. And all all this day, whales lay so thick about the ship that some ran against our cables, some against the ship, 
and one against the rudder. One lay under our brake head and slept there a long while. Oh, God. Which sounds terrifying. They literally are swarming. The, the fjords around Svalbard are swarming with whales who have no notion yeah, how much danger chill. they're in. Yeah. And they came away from 1612 with 180 tons of oil from 17 whales, which is insane. Uh, and then Poole was mur- miserably and basely murdered um, on a, after returning home somewhere between Ratcliffe and London. So that's him done. Uh, I d- didn't find any more information on that, but he's dead now. Poison marmalade. Uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, the Mus- Muscovy Company in England claimed exclusive rights to whale here and sent whale the competition. Escorts from the English Navy came along to help double down on that. But of course, Denmark, Norway claimed sovereignty of the entire Northern Sea because they owned Greenland and they reckoned it's kind of between us and Greenland. It's obviously not English. Um, which is fair. And the Dutch claimed the law of Mare Librum, you know, it just it was it was a free open sea and they could do what they wanted. In 1614, the English tried to buy the rights to Spitsbergen off King Christian IV of, of Denmark, Norway, and he refused. And then they went back to saying it was always ours. It was exclusively ours. Mm. Nobody else has any any claim to it. We we didn't try to buy it. And the the the, the how do you the the, the Denmark Norwegians the Dano the Dano Norwegians they were Dan- a single Danorgs. kingdom the Danorgs the yeah. um, the Scandinavian I believe we got some flack for this in our um, Pharaoh episode I guess yeah. yeah so we'll tiptoe around that very gently King Christian IV of of one of the countries in Scandinavia um, sent tax collectors out to collect tax and didn't get very far with it. I just uh, one thing I've, I found a book review from 1920 in in, in Nature about uh, was it Sir Martin Conway's book all about Spitsbergen, and uh, he just had this to say before we get tied up in Wales exclusively. Um, he mentioned that the land animals in Spitsbergen must have been very abundant in its first discovery. For in 1613, Fotherby's party, in addition to as many whales as he could use, secured a bag of 400 deer and also a good store of wild fowl and many young foxes which were made as tame and familiar as spaniel whelps. That's, that's nice. So those would be reindeer. Those would be um, Svalbard reindeer, which are right. little stumpy legs. The Dutch then, um, they set up the Nordish Company, which was a a, a similar company to the Moscovy, and they basically split Svalbard between them and agreed that it wasn't worth continuing to fight over who owned it. They just There was plenty of whales for everyone. Um, and there were. There were. As the century went on, the Dutch seemed to get the upper hand. And they set up some towns like Smerenburg, which just means blubber town on Amsterdam Island. What a treat. Nice. Yeah, which sounds, it sounds disgusting. It's just, yeah. people might not have the visual image of essentially like Smerenburg began as like a, a camp with basically tripods for rendering the blubber. So you, you, you yeah. kill a whale, you would flens it is the word, where you... you Strip yeah. the blubber off it, and uh, then into giant cubes. I think is my understanding. Cut it down to oh, cubes, God. and then put it into copper kettles, and render it into oil, and then yeah. extract the oil with water to get out the impurities. And then you have a oil that you can barrel up and bring home. And then the blubber and the byproducts and the rancid meat would just be left for the polar bears, if in the yeah. best case scenario, or just thrown into the sea. Um, you know, we probably don't need to get into it too much, but you can just imagine how disgusting these places were when you're trying to 
sort of pick apart a 60 foot long whale you know very visceral stuff yeah yeah in the middle of the the midnight sun i guess in this in this arctic yeah. wasteland uh it's it's, it's not pretty a pretty haunting. picture yeah it's a strange a strange life for you know these sailors picked up probably often as young as 14 or 15 yep. and going off to slaughter and butcher leviathans yeah Smerenburg became pretty populous in the 1630s and 40s. Um, they reckon up to one or 2,000 people might have lived there and there were actual buildings and stuff oh, wow. at that point. But rumours at the time, the Dutch had all this propaganda about how it had like 10,000 people and there were churches and brothels and whatever you wanted, <laughs> no. depending on your tastes. Uh, that seems to all be fiction. Overwintering began as a thing in the 1630s, so an English crew was forced to do it by mistake. Uh, they got left behind. And then the Dutch started doing by design to protect some of their infrastructure in Smerenburg, with mixed results. Some years they survived, some years everyone died. So not a great job. Uh, and Kieran had one or two things to say about the kind of concept of overwintering. The winters in Svalbard are not as cold as they are on the mainland, but there is you know, an element of harsh, bleak landscape, which then created a sort of heroic figure. In Norwegian, you have the term overwinterne, those that overwinter. And there's a sort of kind of prestige attached to those who have spent a whole winter, and remembering it's the polar nights, up in the archipelago. There's a lot of kind of terminology created in Norwegian about the conditions of the overwintering. One term is ra, which, you know, is literally kind of, I suppose, a cabin fever it's a sort of madness that will overtake you and the polar night will just becomes a little bit too much so shift started to come in the late 1600s as the fjords started to dry up of whales who presumably were changing their patterns based on the massive threat to their lives or else were just you know completely depleted and so interlopers who did a did a certain amount of open sea whaling and technological shifts allowed that to become more common where you could flens and you could flens the whale on the ship and then render it on the ship and that became a lot more cost efficient than setting up these settlements which the Dutch and the English companies have been doing uh, and so as they were independent entrepreneurs they were interested in the bottom line and uh, it was a lot more wasteful in terms of meat of course because the meat was not eaten it was just thrown into the sea to, right. to rot. Uh, but it led to a kind of decline in towns uh, and the whales were really, really, really depleted. The Dutch Nordish company was disbanded in the 40s and by the 1670s, the English and Dutch had basically abandoned their land stations and the population, even the summer population dwindled. And I also have some stuff about the Pomors that Mark mentioned, but again, it's quite elusive. There seemed to have been Russian trappers and hunters living there to some extent, but quite quietly and secretly and presume yeah. har harvesting furs from reindeer and Arctic foxes and seals. One of the things that was mentioned about uh, the kind of corroboration or supposed corroboration of, of, of why 
homores were thought to be there was that there was evidence of headless walruses and i think that was right. that was known to be a practice of pomores was that they were quite keen on the heads uh, and i think it was mentioned in someone's diary or account so there was kind of a well therefore there must have been pomores around spitsbergen at the time around svalbard mm. but yeah. i mean maybe yeah exactly it's a maybe but, but i suppose unlike whaling what they were doing was a bit more sustainable. They would alternate yeah. their hunting grounds uh, over different seasons and not just wipe out. They wouldn't just go there and wipe out all of the foxes and they'd be like, great, this was fun. Um, which seems to be the, I don't know, there's something about fuel that makes people just really greedy. Yeah. And you sort of see these animals as just a resource and you're like, well, let's just use it all and then it'll be fine. And that's going to come back with other resources in future centuries. It's going to come back, yeah, for, for all of human history. Hmm. <laughs> all right. All right, we'll take a quick break here, and then we'll come back with the decline of the whaling industry. Yay! And uh, the new industries that popped up in the wake of it. So by the mid-1700s, whale hunting had largely declined. The bowhead or right whales had been generally depleted in the waters around Svalbard. So as whaling declined, attention sort of turned to what else can we pillage from these islands? Oh, oh dear. What's the next thing uh, that we're going we're gonna to take out of this place? So the next decade or so was dominated by hunting and scientific expeditions. Classic combination. Uh, so those are two things I'm going to talk about. Okay. There were voyages to Svalbard in the 17th century that there was a little bit of scientific interest, but um, generally scientific interest didn't really pick up until the 1700s. And at this time, I don't know if you guys know this, but there was a scientific theory uh, that posited that, that there was uh, an open polar sea at the North Pole. Yes. Have you guys ever heard be about that. this before? Yeah. I have. Yeah. I don't know if we've talked about it on the show before. I don't remember that we have. I know we've talked about um, Terra, Terra Australis Incognita. Yeah. Australis, Australis, yes. Yeah the missing Australian continent. But um, this was another thing that was kind of floating around in the 17th century where scientists figured that for whatever reason, <laughs> the top of the world must be just open sea the whole year round, uh, even though everywhere around it is frozen. Uh, and basically this idea sort of posited that if you could break through the pack ice and get to the open polar sea, you could get to the other side of the yeah. world pretty easily. And so that spurred a race for the North Pole. Uh, and many of those expeditions base themselves in Svalbard, which is, you know, the obvious place to uh, sure. push to the North Pole from because it's one of the only places that's, you know, relatively close geographically. So the, the first major scientific expedition to call it Svalbard was the Russian Chichikov expedition, which took place between 1764 and 1766. That called it Svalbard in an unsuccessful attempt to find a passage to the Pacific. And it established a base camp at Svalbard where the crew wintered and took scientific measurements, but ultimately was unsuccessful. They reached a maximum latitude of 80 degrees, 30 minutes north, uh, but ultimately failed to find a route through the ice. Do we know what, how, many, how many degrees is, uh, is the North Pole? I was going to say, is it 90 degrees? 90. It must be 90, right? Right it's, angle through the Earth's core? 
<laughs> we should know, I guess. Yeah, maybe we should look that up. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the North Pole is 90 degrees By north. definition. The yeah. geographic North Pole. Okay, okay. Yeah, so they came within 10 degrees of the North Pole, but uh, had to turn back. In 1773, uh, a guy called Captain John Constantine Phipps of the Royal Navy in two ships, the Racehorse and the Carcass. <laughs> Wait, sorry, what? The Carcass? Why would you what? call the, the Racehorse the and the Carcass. <laughs> I know. Well, there's... I'm going to talk a little bit later about a ship that we've talked about, I think, before called the Terror, which uh, is an equally, I think, a bad name. It's better than Carcass. No, the Terror is amazing. The Terror is really cool. Inflicting like it, terror I into guess. terrorizing your enemies. But the yeah. Carcass is like, our ship is dead. We live inside it like maggots <laughs> squirming around like <laughs> turd eaters. Yeah. Oh, man. Try harder, Royal Navy. Try harder. I was going to say maybe that conjures a vision of like a, a, a horse with a dead rider maybe i don't know so this guy phipps received instructions from uh, sir joseph banks do you guys remember him uh appearing in our back catalog i can't remember where from he made a cameo in our pitcairn episode he was the guy that sent yeah. um, bly on his on his mission in the bounty um yeah. oh, so he's basically like mr natural history in uh in the royal geographic society i think at this time this expedition was uh, also a failure um but there was an interesting story that came out of it courtesy of a young coxswain named uh, Nelson. <laughs> and he and a fellow shipmate ventured out one evening in search of a bear skin. Of course. And I've got a quote here from an article called A Very Interesting Point in Geography by uh, a lady called Anne Savers, who, um, who recounts this story. <laughs> I love so, the names of articles in the past. Yeah. She says, Nelson, in high spirits, led the way over the frightful chasms in the ice, armed with a rusty musket. It was not long, however, before the adventurers were missed by those on board. Between three and four in the morning, the hunters were discovered at a considerable distance attacking a large bear. The signal was instantly made for their return, but it was in vain that Nelson's companion urged him to obey it. He was at this time divided by a chasm in the ice from his shaggy antagonist, which probably saved his life. For the musket had flashed in the pan and the ammunition was expended. Never mind, exclaimed Horatio. Hang on. But do let me get a blow at this devil by the, by the end of my musket and we shall have him. It the is... captain, seeing the young man's danger, ordered a gun to be fired to terrify the enraged animal. This had the desired effect, but Nelson was obliged to return without his bear, somewhat agitated at the apprehension of the consequences of this adventure. I think you had a question there, Joe. Is is that is this man, this, this coxswain... Horatio, Horatio Nelson. Horatio Whoa. Nelson. Yes, he was. Yes. So, who would go on to be known as Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson, First Viscount Nelson, First Duke of Bronte, one of the heroes of the Napoleonic Wars. All right. If you haven't heard of him before, and uh, if you've ever been to Trafalgar Square in London, you will have seen him standing on top of a column, Nelson's mm-hmm. column. Yeah, and his party apparently were one of the first uh, ever European expeditions to describe the polar bear. Uh, oh, all so right. kind of interesting. Uh, in 1818, David Buchan and uh, John Franklin in the Dorothea and the Trent were no more successful. Uh, their two ships sailed almost uh, as far north as the northmost tip of Spitsbergen and were trapped in pack ice for a few weeks. They then tried to drag themselves further north with ropes uh, nice. through the pack, but eventually had to return home unsuccessfully. And Franklin, uh, who I mentioned there, would later become famous. Benjamin Franklin. No. Uh, this is the story of the HMS Terror, which I don't know oh, if right. you guys know, but it's also known as Franklin's Lost Expedition. Uh, basically, him and <laughs> his crew positive. went to find the Northwest Passage. Okay. Uh, oh, and yes. On board the HMS yes. Terror and HMS Erebus, and all 129 of them disappeared. 
uh, without a well, not without a trace, but uh, just their shrieks. Were found the shrieks in the in night. The last sort of decade or so, I think one of the ships was was uncovered. But um, oh, wow. yeah, no, I think you're I think you're right there. And they made a mini series about it, which was very good. And uh, a guy called Dan Simmons wrote a novel about it, which was really really good as well. Which which basically has like a like a supernatural polar bear monster in it. Um, that sounds like so it's kind of yeah. like historical fiction slash sci-fi. It's it's super interesting. Uh, I, I I would recommend the book as well. I am an unknowable mythical allegory, Dan Simmons. You can you? Yeah, I've 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 just started reading a ghost story set in Spitsbergen, which I think is going to go a similar direction. Ooh, nice. Unfortunately, okay. I uh, called Dark Matter, but unfortunately, I haven't uh, haven't gotten too deep into it it's very foreboding at this point all right nice early 20th century yeah yeah no the book is called the terror and all right it is it is it is somewhat terrifying um <laughs> so during the later 19th century mostly swedish explorers uh such as a guy called otto torell and adolf eric nordenskold Great made unsuccessful pushes to the pole from spitsbergen so again just failed attempt after failed attempt one of the earliest scientific expeditions examining Svalbard itself was led by Barto von Leuvenig, a German, in 1827. And accompanying him was a, a Norwegian geologist with a great name, Balthazar Matthias Kielhau. He was the first one to publish results of geological investigations into the archipelago himself. And his findings would become pretty important down the line. And oh. We have a quick clip from Kieran here about uh, what he found. So there is very little mention of vikings in svalbard until the 19th century when it becomes politically important it didn't really gain any traction until the 1830s when norwegian geologists started exploring in svalbard they sent a geologist called balthazar matthias karlhoi up to svalbard to collect samples he wrote a book about it rise at west finnmark and stamped in beer island or spitsbergen and he was there in the years 1827 to 28, to which he kind of appended some of the Old Norse material, striking a claim for you know, how it was Norwegian in origins. This kind of idea was purported in this book. And then in 1841, shortly before he went to Svalbard, Norway was being transferred from the ownership of Denmark to Sweden. So you have ideas of what is Norway? What is Denmark? What is Sweden? If you're talking about Old Norse material, how do you differentiate them? And you also have an increase in the Norwegianization of the country, particularly focused around uh, the inhabitants of Sápmi, where they wanted to increase you know, use of Norwegian language. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, hunting. Uh, so jumping back a few years, in terms of commercial life, the island's importance uh, pretty soon after whaling declined centered around trapping. There was uh, encouragement from Peter the Great, who became Tsar of Russia in 1689. His government would pay uh, good money for trapping in order to develop the economy in areas in the Arctic. Traditional Pomor uh, whalers and trappers had previously set up shop in, in Svalbard, you know, and they were used to overwintering there, while Europeans only came up generally during the summer. Uh, the Pomors, because they were uh, overwintering in Svalbard, which, uh, you know, is, is seemingly 
a horrific thing to do, as you would imagine, uh, being so close to the North Pole. Yep. They were able to obtain the best, thickest furs, which would bring the best prices. So they worked at trapping wildlife like the Arctic fox and, would you believe it, the polar bear for their prized furs. Right. Uh, foxes were trapped with uh, wooden traps, which uh, killed the fox with heavy stones. So basically the, bo- the sort of trap or box would, would uh, collapse on top of the fox once it uh, once it got inside. Oh. And polar Cute. bears were hunted uh, <laughs> mostly in the eastern parts of Svalbard and they were killed with self-shots uh, which I I had to look up this term but essentially a trap with a gun in it yes uh, yeah. so what? these are essentially those things that you would see in movies uh, where somebody's like tied to a chair with a shotgun pointing at them yeah. and then if somebody opens the door or whatever it is um, then they get shot in the face that's essentially right. what these were was like a, a, a shotgun or a rifle in a crate uh, use with using a piece of blubber as a bait I was going to ask about the trapping of polar bears because polar bears aren't something that are trapped. Not exactly. not just because obviously they're they're endangered and so on, but it's because you ain't no trap gonna kill a polar bear. It's just not exactly. how traps work. So it makes a lot more sense that they're basically still just shooting them because that's pretty much all you can yes. do. Shooting them, but not with a trap. Having to pull the trigger, yeah. Uh, which we're, we're we're learning so much in this episode about like things that you don't really. How to kill animals, really? Really large but like How animals. to kill animals that are yeah. currently endangered. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's how that happened. Yeah. Yep. Yep. When I read that, I was like, okay, how, like you said, Mark, like how the heck did they trap, you know, polar bears? Because I've read stories and stuff about like, you know, people in Svalbard today not being able to bring them down. Yeah. Uh, despite going everywhere everywhere with rifles. Um, so. My money's still yeah, on the I polar bear. <laughs> no matter what, what brand yeah, of rifle you exa- got. Exactly. So if exactly. it's me with a rifle, that polar bear is winning. Yep. So uh, seal hunting was also quite, quite popular. Um, started uh, by the Germans in the late 17th century. Uh, later taken over by Norwegians and yeah. Danish in the 18th century. And was less po- less profitable. Uh, but could be conducted during the summer and required less manpower. Um, And the footprints left behind by these kind of trapping expeditions can still be found all over the islands, uh, even to today. So there's a lot of sort of abandoned whaling settlements. I don't know if you saw any pictures of those when you were researching your segment, Joe. No, I did, yeah. And there's just kind of like, almost like petrified blubber remains, just... Yeah, yeah. What do you call it? Calcified remains, just kind of... it's, It's pretty grim looking. It's it not, is. It, it wouldn't look out of place in a sort of a Lord of the Rings, um, you know, Isengard kind of setting. Sure, sure. And hearing about the, the stories of these trappers like overwintering in Svalbard and seeing, you know, some of the settlements and huts basically that they used to live in mm-hmm. for, you know, months and months on end with no no daylight. It, it just it, it boggles the mind, to be perfectly honest. Essentially, the, the Russian trapping trade uh, collapsed due to political turmoil at home and the poem wars retreated and by that point by that time the norwegians were knocking at the door uh, of trapping in svalbard norwegians were the first other than the poem wars to overwinter in svalbard as far as i know uh the the apparently that that first overwintering took place in 1794 uh and they had to enlist the expertise of of some russians to learn sort of how to survive yeah. uh the polar winter uh, additionally, Danish-Norwegian author- authorities promised a reward 
for vessels that would take up Arctic hunting. And so Norwegian trapping uh, and whaling kind of increased gradually throughout the 1800s. And also in 1850, um, several hundred or thousand miles away in Lansing, Michigan, a U.S. congressman was celebrating the birth of a new baby boy, a guy called John Monroe Longyear. And we'll never hear of him again, I suppose. Who I imagine Mark is going to talk about in his section. Yep. For now, though, let's take a quick break. Speaking of long years, 2020 really has kept on going. We'd like to thank all of you who have helped support us through this year and through this season at patreon.com slash 80 days podcast. This episode was nominated by our top tier patrons. That is a Neil Armstrong tier. But in this episode, it seems particularly appropriate to shout out our Roald Amundsen tier of supporters, given he set off in some of his famous expeditions from Svalbard, as you'll hear soon. So, uh, in no particular order, as the season comes to a close, I'd just like to recognise Gregory Craddock, Ryan Fink, Emily Eggman, Kjartan Berem, Dermot Hurley, Daniel Biaf, Amari Dryden, Andrea Filigedu, Mark Christopher Kratt, Thad Jackson, and Christopher Carson. And thank them and all of our other patrons for their support. If you want to join them, the link is in the show notes. And we hope you'll continue to support us into season five. Thanks very much. Mark, was there anything left to explore on uh, on Svalbard after uh, all this exploring and scientific research? Well, I'll tell you what, some people were dargon gonna try. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, it does not, does not work out. Um, yeah, no, 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 no one lives there. It doesn't belong to anybody. The freezy series Terra, Terra Nullis. Yes. And it is, it is pretty nullis. Uh, there's, there's nobody who lives there. It is, it is no man's land. And yep. that was a term used by European colonists in a lot of uh, what we call the New World. Ugh. Pretty inaccurately like nobody's here and the yeah no no white people basically yeah and the australian aborigines or the maori or the the navajo will be like we're here though like no it's an empty land full of nobody um but i think (laughs) spitsburg is probably the only place where you're like terranolus is actually no actually no people there's literally nobody here i'm gonna gonna start off by talking about the uh, svenskuset tragedy of uh 1872 1873 uh, did I, did I say tragedy? I meant fun party. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. So uh, around this time, Sweden and Norway are in, in a kind of a, you know, union. Um, and there's a sort of a Swedish pitch to colonize Svalbard. They want to take it on. There is an expedition sent with, uh, 27 men, women, children, lots of tasty livestock, uh, and they all ship off to Svalbard. What a fantastic merry time! Oh, they, no. they, no, I mean, they, they, this is this is not this is not the tragedy part. They, they kind of they okay, set up as best right. they can. There's you know rail track and they got the livestock and it just doesn't really work out. Like the 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 administration they're trying to put in place is never successful. This is essentially a, a colonization effort, or yeah, they're trying to set up a, set a, a okay. settlement. I think at this point they're aware that there is you know uh, resources there that might be worthwhile. That's why they try to set up um, uh, a rail network uh, and and so on. 
they try to make a go of it. It doesn't really work. Um, and they pretty much abandon the ship. The Swedes then sold the whole thing to the Norwegian government, suggesting that it might be useful for them sheltering uh, shipwrecked soldiers. So it was just kind of left there, this house with all a whole pile of stuff in it. Fast forward to uh, Adolf uh, Nordenskjold. I think you mentioned him, Luke, and he, he he did several expeditions up north. He was one of these kind of you know mm. pioneer, adventuring uh, men of mystery. And he would actually, as far as I know, go on to be the first person to find the Northeast Passage uh, in a part of his story that I will not tell here. But uh, he he is a, a big time Charlie. In 1827, uh, he was on one of these uh, these famous expeditions of his, and he got into big trouble. I think his intention was to try to go to the North Pole pulled by reindeer. All but one of them escaped. And also his supply ships, which were meant to kind of, you know, hang back, basically. Uh, they all got caught in the ice with him. And he was kind of goosed from the off. So suddenly he had all these extra people to feed. He had extra supplies, but not that many more supplies. Uh, so the, the kind of the thing was scrubbed pretty much straight away. So they just kind of wait for the. Was uh, that the tragedy? No, oh, that's the tragedy. No. So another expedition was actually happening at the same time. Great. It was six Norwegian ships with fifty-eight crew. They simultaneously got trapped uh, elsewhere and froze in forty kilometers away from Nordenskjold. Eight men from that expedition trekked over to where Nordenskjold was, and Nordenskjold said, "Well, if some of you guys came over to me." You, we could winter together, but I, I definitely don't have enough food for everybody. But there's this Swedish hut that was set up before for that old, the first expedition I mentioned, with all this food in it. Mm. So maybe some of your guys can just go there and actually you'll have the best time of it because you'll have the most food. There's a little bit of risk to get there, but like once you're there, you're flipping golden. You'll be sorted. Doesn't this sound like the opening act of a horror movie? So the 8th of October, uh, 17 men set off to row to what should have been, you know, actually a pretty cushy gig as far as, you know, Svalbard in the 19th century went. Hmm. They all died and no one, no one knew why. Did they, did they make it to the house? They made it to the house. They made it to the house and they were, they were hanging there. They were, you know, it was, it was like a a Mary Celestish kind of a thing. No one, like they all died, but no one knew how they died. And they were kind of all writing, you know, it's all over for me kind of notes and so on. And, but nobody knew, nobody knew why they died. The guys that found them, I think it was, it wasn't like actually all that long later because people were looking for them. It was in 1873, it was the following year. They turned up and they were like, well, they're all dead. Probably through idleness. They all, they're, all, they're all a bit, they, they smack of loafers to me. Uh, and they thought they probably got scurvy just because they were too stupid to eat citrus. That was basically what their right. prognosis was. And there was like corpses over there. Uh, too lazy to even pick up a bloody orange. Can you flippin' believe it? Like it was that—that that, that wow. was the view. There, that that also kind of smacks of um, a little bit of the Franklin expedition that I mentioned earlier, sure. where like there was a bunch of theories because they displayed some very erratic behavior uh, oh, right. towards mm. the end of that expedition. And there was like theories that they were suffering from lead poisoning because apparently like some lead got into some of their tins of food. So yeah, that, that that's actually where, that's where we're going, Luke. We're we're going straight to Lead Town. Okay, all so right. they they all they all died cool. in the house. Uh, some were like wrapped up, and some had been buried outside, and all the rest of it. There, you know, there were some people keeping diaries and stuff, but but they didn't know why they were dying. And there was actually a study in 2009 that managed to get up to Svalbard, Kai and Acebo, who went there and they took samples from the bones of the people buried. 
And what they found was they had, um, you know, just enormous concentrations of lead in their system, found the tins, they had all been soldered with lead. So that mm. that is that is the very strong suggestion. It wasn't because they decided not to eat citrus fruit. It was because they were basically ingesting enormous amounts of lead. Wow. So, Mark, I see, I see a detail here that about the note. Would you like to tell us? Yes. When, 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 when the people who found them got there, there was a note on the door saying, do not enter. Um, uh, yeah. So it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty scary. Uh, but Damn. that's because they didn't know what they were dying of. They thought it was some kind of crazy mm. mystery di- disease, which doesn't sound so foolish yeah. anymore. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, 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 they thought they were dying for some mystery disease. Um, but it was because they were eating fistfuls of lead uh, three meals a day. Wow. Yeah. All right. Hmm. That's not good for you. Anyway, yes. Don't uh, do that, kids. Don't eat lead. That's that's our tip. Yeah. This this episode of 80 Days is brought to you by Don't Eat Lead. Yes. <laughs> So over over the next couple of years, um, Sweden had a very strong link with Svalbard, kind of post eighteen fifty. You know all that, you know all those expeditions you were mentioning, Luke. But kind of gradually, Norway's interest takes over. Norway becomes its own country gradually, and is kind of staking an ever greater claim. It's also kind of because of um, uh, expeditions by by Norwegian explorers. It's kind of gaining a greater. Um, uh, profile in the Norwegian public consciousness, and because Norway is kind of a young country, they're like, well, let's let's take something over. <laughs> like everyone else is doing it. It's it's that kind of time. So they they feel like you're sure as with the style at the time. As with the style, that, but there's one guy in particular yeah. I just want to mention. His name was Fridtjof Nansen, uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to just say his his Wikipedia first line. Uh, Fridtjof Vedel Jarlsberg Nansen. Uh, born 1861, died 1930, was a Norwegian explorer, scientist, diplomat, humanitarian, and Nobel Peace Prize laureate. Wow. All right, Fridjof. He, uh, he did you know, lots of these kind of buccaneering expeditions up north, and accounts of these were really kind of what pushed uh, Svalbard, which, like, let's be honest, you know, isn't, mm. no one's going, going for, for sunny holidays in Svalbard. It's not, it's not that kind of place, but it, it really kind of made no. it very romantic and the kind of, I guess we can kind of talk about the the viking element as well the kind of you know playing into norwegian sense of ancient history and so on kieran did have something to say about nansen uh, as as an important character in that that process of popularizing viking links in the 1880s this material comes back up again with more focus from norwegian antiquarian societies and the one that really popularized it was the explorer fridjof nansen who in the early 20th century published a book on a history of Arctic exploration in which he really hammered home that the Old Norse had been there before anybody else, before the Brits, the Dutch. And so because Pete Nansen was a celebrity, his books were translated and his ideas circulated. So... There's kind of two last elements I'm going to mention. One is just kind of the, the, the jumping off point of Svalbard for so many expeditions to try to find the North Pole. Here's just a list of some of them. Uh, first is Norden Skuld uh, in his steamship, the Sophia. He tried to get up there, wrecked at 81 degrees. Actually, was that the one you mentioned, Luke? 
there was the 80 degrees no if it was after 1850 then i i, I don't have it oh uh, okay so got an extra degree uh so yeah he got a, almost a full degree yeah. further up uh, in 1872-73 the northern school expedition i mentioned uh obviously all his reindeer died so he, he just tried to use manhole sledges it didn't work because they're not Man reindeer. Manhole sledges. Yeah, just again, he Ooh. basically tried to walk there. Basically, is what he tried to do. Wow. <laughs> All right. Um, and then there's a guy called uh, Wellman, who's American, and he tried to use a steamship uh, to get up there, and he also was wrecked. 1896, a guy called Andre in a hydrogen balloon crashed on 82 degrees, almost 83. Lucky oh, man. Almost 83 degrees. Yeah. And then 1925, uh, skipping on a little bit, Roald Amundsen. One of the tiers on our Patreon. Yeah, If you want to back us on Patreon, you can back us at the Roald Amundsen level. <laughs> the uh, the first man to reach the South Pole, yep. he used flying boats to try to get there. Oh, what? hang on, what, what now? That sounds that sounds cool. Yeah, he, 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 he basically cool. tried to fly there and kind of land on it. Oh, nice. But he had to make an emergency landing at 88 degrees, oh. uh, so almost all the way to 90. But wow. Amundsen was also probably the first person to get to the North Pole. It seems to be much more debated uh, than the South Pole because, you know, I guess the South Pole's harder to make an attempt at or, you know, it's further away from places you might try to base an mm. attempt from. So um, they used an airship uh, to get up there. And, you know, despite there being claims that preceded Amundsen, his is probably the best documented and kind of the first, kind of like kind of what we were saying with Behrens being the first as Falbard. There might have been others before him, I guess, potentially. But, you know, his was the, the first, first to be verifiable. One that was of, established. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Amundsen, you know, he... Is, is it really that recent that the first... It seems to be, North yeah. Uh, I mean, again, there's other accounts from earlier in the 20th century, kind of 1905, 1906. But uh, apparently it's just, hmm. you know, a, a person left... Came back and said, well, not much to see, guys, but I did go there. And I'm like, uh, Pixar didn't happen, baby. Uh, so, yeah. Is is there grounds for us doing a spin-off podcast called 80 Degrees? A <laughs> failed exploration podcast. Yeah. I think, is... I think we had a lot, of, a lot of kind of abandoned sleds and, and airships. There was a few airships, and, yeah. Uh, uh, hot air balloons. Like a, was there yeah. a hot air balloon in there somewhere? Yeah, that's, yeah. It gets a bit wacky races, I yeah. think. For sure. Uh, email us and let us know. 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear if you would listen to... Uh, was it uh, 80 degrees? 80 degrees. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The, the real joke is the suggestion that we would do a second podcast. <laughs> this podcast. We franchise us, maybe. Yeah. That would be the way to go. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm going to mention two, two final things. The first is mining. Because of the kind of geological uh, swamps and so on that we're allowed to fester, congeal, turn into lovely, juicy fossil fuels and so on, uh, there was quite significant deposits of coal up in Svalbard. And um, from the kind of very end of the uh, 19th century to the kind of 1930s or so, there there was kind of quite an interest in trying to you know have regular coal mining businesses up there. And because it was terra nullis, uh, you know, go for it, basically. It was kind of open season. Nobody's going to stop you. Yeah, exactly. So this guy in 1899, he was a sealing captain called Soren Zachariasen, uh, and he mined about a ton of coal, and this made people kind of realize, oh, actually, uh, this 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 could maybe work if this guy could do it. Uh, he sold, sold it locally, uh, mainly in, in kind of Tromso in Norway. But 
He also then started setting up these small coal companies prospecting around Svalbard. A few of the companies that kind of reared their heads here were the British Spitsbergen Coal and Trading Co. Uh, so the Brits were involved. This was during that period that we talked about before where your company was basically named after what it did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> British Coal. Simpler times, really. Yeah, yeah. So kind of 1905 to 1908, they start doing, you know, across the year production of, of coal. Property rights were a problem. There was one company called Northern Exploration, another UK company, that claimed to own 10,000 square kilometers of Svalbard but you know there is no documentation because you can't own anything there <laughs> you just just you saying it. it's your word for it really it's probably worth mentioning that the, the guy Luke Luke referred to earlier um what was his name John, John Longyear uh, John Monroe Longyear who, yeah who in I think it was 1906 set up some coal mining in a place on the East Fjorden that would eventually become Longyear Boon it was called Longyear City initially and yeah. his company was bought by uh, Stora Norska Spitsbergen Kool Company, which is a kind of a state-run also coal company, yeah. and transformed into over over the following decades. Eventually, became a kind of administrative capital, Longyearbyen, which uh, we've probably mentioned a few times already. But that's why it's called after an American dude. Is essentially the the de facto capital, even though yeah. there isn't really a capital Svalbard. But as as far as that goes, it's it's it's, it's the, biggest the biggest place town. there, yeah, by, by, yeah, by some yeah, way. Yeah. Uh, actually, that's pretty germane because the next thing I was going to mention was uh, the Russian state-owned mining company Trust Artikugal, who bought a settlement in Barentsburg. Uh, they bought it from the the Dutch who had been doing some mining. Do you know what? Would you know what Artikugal means? Have a guess. Uh, Arctic coal. Arctic coal. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Arctic Ugal. Um, but uh, so they bought that from a bunch of Dutch and Swedes who had been up there. Mm. Also, just to flag that World War One kind of killed off a lot of the fervor for coal mining up there. After then, it was really only the Norwegians and the Russians who did any significant amount of mining. I think we talked in a previous episode about... Wasn't it Churchill uh, converted the British fleet to oil-fired ships rather than coal-fired mm. ships, like right before World War One or oh, something? Right. Yes, which benefited Suriname, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and that essentially like ruined coal. coal, I think, to plummet. Yeah, right. yeah. So, yeah, that probably has something to do with it, too. Fair enough. It's all connected. <laughs> the, the, I mean, yeah. Uh, so the last thing I'm going to mention is just the kind of political political angle. Um, so from, as I've said before, 1814 to 1905, Norway and Sweden were unified, but mm-hmm. Norway was becoming ever kind of more independent and having a greater idea themselves. And they were very interested in the idea of kind of taking over Svalbard. Norway, kind of around that time, I think were... We're canvassing around to see if anybody would mind if uh, if it got a bit annexed. Uh, and they found a lot of uh, resistance from the Russians. Uh, a big part of that was because the Russians' view was that it was kind of part of the greater sphere of influence of the Pomors that we mentioned. Those kind of uh, yes. roving hunters and migratory sailors. Um, even though there's not really a lot of hard evidence. Yeah, there's as much as there is for Viking uh, occupation. I mean, that, that's yeah, I mean, it. They're, they're essentially the first sort of modern settlers, I guess, if you can call them settlers. But both the Russians and the Norwegians were kind of desperately uh, commissioning research to try to, you know, validate yeah. their claims. Uh, a lot of it pretty flippin' spurious. Yeah. Uh, anyway, N- Norway's public opinion was kind of all in. You know, we talked about Nansen and various others. Like, they, they, they saw this as, you know, this is going to be our big step into 
colonialism, I guess. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so uh, Norway started holding these conferences once they were kind of independent from 1905. They did one in 1910, 1912, 1914. Bit distraction from 1914 on because it was World War One. It was called the Spitsbergen issue because, you know, no one really wanted to give it to them because why would you? But eventually it got sorted out in the Spitsbergen Treaty signed in 1920. And that was signed around the fringes of the Treaty of Versailles, signed at the end of World War I. And some of the main points of that were that it would be recognised as, as Norwegian sovereign territory. However, uh, taxes collected there would stay there effectively so the money wouldn't be going back to norway so it kind of undermines any economic reason for having a sovereignty over it mm -hmm. the norwegians must pr respect and preserve the svalbard environment what by by mining it well i mean they just need to respect it right. that's that's it environmentalism is different in the 20s exactly all citizens and all companies of every nation under the treaty are allowed to become residents and to have access to svalbard uh, including right to fish hunt mining all mm -hmm. all the stuff uh, whatever you want, basically. I think that's still the case. I, I believe it's still the case. I think it's this yeah, this, yeah. this treaty yeah. is still is still live, still active. Um, and actually, yeah. and something that's also still the case is that you know you or I can move to Svalbard tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, but want to? Yeah, anyone who's listening to this could in, indeed. But if you live in Svalbard, it does not count to you know uh, your credit in terms of access to living in Norway. So if you just if you live in Svalbard, you're just living in Svalbard. No, that's right. it. Yeah, no, you you get access to no social welfare. There's no exactly pension entitlements. You're just you can be there if you want to be there, and you can support yourself. Yeah, it's probably wor worth saying here about the thing that it's illegal to die is something we we people keep saying. It's not illegal to die, but there is nowhere to bury you. I heard actually that it's it's actually um, they won't allow you to be buried there yeah. anymore yeah. because. The movements of the ice. It'll chuck you mm -hmm. back up. Apparently is a kind of a gruesome thing. They they yeah. will eventually push bodies up to the surface yeah. again. So you're obliged to make arrangements for, you know, either be polite and die somewhere else or yes. at least have travel insurance or whatever that would make sure you get removed yeah. ASAP. And also they say they say nobody is born on Svalbard. No, I think you're 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 like you can kind of predict that you're going to have a baby and they'd be like, Maybe you could just exactly. not be here in this terrifying ice exactly place. because they have a hospital that i think has six beds in it or something that's uh, and and like yeah. you know uh very minimal medical staff so it's, it's very rare they'll be able to i think they'd be able to handle a birth but you know if there was something like a cesarean section or you know mm. complications or needed icu then yeah you want to be in tromso or or oslo or somewhere else nearby with a more developed uh, healthcare Just system. Just somewhere else. That is not, somewhere yeah, that's not yeah. a, an island. I don't think I mentioned earlier, but uh, Extremities, which is a, another podcast that does a, you know, has recently muscled in on our, on our territory. The swine. And does um, similar sort of things where he looks at, um, over the series, over a series of uh, multiple different episodes, looks at kind of more like modern day living in, in strange places. And he covered Svalbard and he pointed out, uh, I was listening to that podcast a, a, a few days ago. He pointed out that, um, if you fly north from Oslo, uh, it takes you about two and a half hours to get to uh, Svalbard. Whereas if you fly south from Oslo, it would almost take you to North Africa. So that yeah, <laughs> that yeah. gives you an idea of exactly how far away this place is. Because you think you know, you would think maybe looking at a map, it's a short hop from Norway, but it's yeah. it's really not. Yeah. Very last point is that there's meant to be no military on Svalbard, mm -hmm. and that instead of having you know a big governmenty government type thing. They, they they have a guy 
Uh, he's called the Sisselman or governor. And I think nowadays there's a bit of kind of administrative help for the poor, lonely old Sisselman. But they basically, they Sisselman does everything. The police and the fire and administering the hospitals and, and whatever. It's it's just one tiny little kind of thing. Yeah. And, and and so it is pretty much until until today, as far as I know. And I'm pretty sure this treaty is the point when the new name comes in. Uh, that Svalbard was kind of the, the Viking reference to oh. Oh, interesting. the Cold Coast. And so the name shifts from Spitsbergen to Svalbard officially, right. I think around the time of this treaty well i guess because it was the spitsbergen treaty it was still called that at that point yeah but once yeah. once they once the norwegians got sovereignty over it they could call whatever they friggin wanted yeah chicken sandwich land or something you know? they're kind of doubling down on their historical claim yeah in air quotes norway is cool land all right so will we take a quick break there and let's, let's uh, then we'll yeah. come back with uh, world war ii conflict on the horizon joe do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, how that affected svalbard svalbard was a surprisingly relevant part of of the war which i didn't mm. know i mean there, there's nobody there but like in it not nobody but a couple of thousand people there's going to be even less nobody as, as i understand it Th- there is for a while oh, oh dear yeah, yeah. yeah. so in 1939 there were about three thousand people in svalbard mostly norwegians and some Soviets as well. They were Soviets at that point, right? Yes, yep, USSR they citizens, were. shall we say. Yep. Um, I think Ukrainians and Russians for the most part, but I couldn't swear to that. I think Ukrainians because... Um, the mining. The mining, yeah. Ukraine oh, is like right. a big mining, so I think a lot of Ukrainians went to Svalbard. Yeah, and still to this day, a big part of the, the quote-unquote Russian population is actually ba- Ukrainian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're mostly miners. They're extracting about 500,000 tons of coal per year. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. a lot. Um, In 1940, Norway was occupied by the Nazis. So that changed things. Uh, Because I think Norway had been neutral, right? Yeah, I think it was was Vidkun Quisling. Wasn't he the the traitor who uh, who gave Norway over? If I'm remembering correctly, that was the blunder that ousted... Chamberlain was so. the, the sort of yeah. Norway saga where like mm-hmm. they okay. effed it up so badly that they demanded his resignation as as prime minister and then Churchill came in. All right, okay. So yeah. So anyway, Norway was occupied by the Nazis in in 1941. The USSR was invaded by Nazi Germany. So there's kind of hmm. you know we got an island full of Norwegians and, and Soviets and and Germany is at war with Andorra occupying their home countries both of those places yeah yeah but obviously you know there wasn't a, an ss branch in in long right uh, it was very much kind of left to its own devices and what i didn't realize was that i never really thought about it so like you guys know i'm not as big a fan of world war ii as, as most um I, I find it sometimes a bit tedious world war ii joe uh, is not a fan yeah <laughs> i give this conflict one star <laughs> but 
you forget that the Germans didn't have much by way of ocean. Uh, nope. Or sure. navy. Yeah. Or any of that kind of thing. So when it came to weather, they were deeply under-resourced compared to the British and the Americans and the French and other such Atlantic-y allies, shall we say. Sure. And technically, they had access to Spitsbergen, which would have been useful. So anyway, the British kind of foresaw that. And in August 1941, Operation Gauntlet led to some British, Canadian and free Norwegian forces. So mm. Norwegian forces in exile. Yeah. Attempted to destroy all the coal infrastructure and stores in Spitsbergen and to evacuate all the Allied nationals and destroy any... There was an uncoded weather broadcasting um, station there. Right. Okay. That they decided was not in their favour anymore. So, you know, the neutrality was, was all well and good until it was helping your enemy. Basically, a very successful operation. They broadcast some fake fog warnings to try and stop the uh, the Luftwaffe kind of p- poking around Spitsbergen while they right. were destroying the weather station, which is quite clever. Um, <laughs> and this was kind of the start of, of what, what you might what I've seen called the weather wars around this kind of problem that Germany had, where a lot of weather fronts flow west to east across the Atlantic and then impact oh. the theaters of war of World War Two and. The British and the Americans and the Canadians knew a lot more about that and could plan. Right. Even D-Day, you know, was held off by a was held off by a day because the the, yeah. the Valencia weather station in Kerry in Ireland yeah, yeah. gave a weather report that the British had access to. Yeah. And And the Germans obviously didn't. Yeah. Didn't. And so um you know, weather played a key role in, in, in this particular war. That's really cool. Particularly when the planes were involved. So Spitsburg was one of these places where where weather could be measured. There's a contrast there between what happened with the pharaohs, which we talked about earlier this season, mm. where the British, like once the Nazis occupied Denmark, wasn't it? The the British just were right. We're taking the pharaohs then. Right. Whereas yeah, here so they took a slightly different tactic thought... and was like, ah, we're just going to destroy Svalbard so you guys mm. can't use it. Yeah, I didn't follow up much on it, but I think there was one or two Norwegians stay behind as conscientious objectors, either in this right. or a later. Um, okay. A later operation because presumably they were, you know, maybe more more pro Nazi or at least anti British than uh, right than than the the average um, person. Not not to defame them, but Norwegian seems an odd. I'm actually quite hate- hateful, so I'm going to stay. Best of luck. <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks for destroying my town. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> what were you staying for at that point? Yeah. So. Uh, Nazi reconnaissance flights around this time found burning coal supplies and towns and yeah and one conscientious objector waving to them who refused to evacuate so you just missed the allies they went that away they ruined everything Um, the Nazis set up a a manned weather station at Adventfjord led by polar explorer Dr. Erich Etienne which is kind of an interesting you don't think of jaunty explorers as being Nazis but of course some of them were Mm -hmm. And the idea was was if they had a they could in, also intercept UK USSR travel over the top of Europe, which again I hadn't thought about. And Bletchley Park was monitoring these ships, you know, the the decoding yeah yep. place Alan with, Turing uh, and the Turing was there, uh, yep. and they were working on their Enigma project, and they sent some ships to interrupt the setup. And I don't think they were successful because the the, the a team of, of German operatives. Uh, led by a guy called Maul, spent the winter forty one, forty two there sending weather reports. So I thought you were going to say there for a second that I don't think they were successful because Germany lost the war. 
as you may be surprised to hear. Which is also uh, technically yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In April 1942, the Allies got control of the islands again. Uh, 92 Norwegians under uh, Lieutenant Uy, which is a good name. Excuse me. They reoccupied the island for the Norwegians. An automated system was sent f- from Norway to replace the, the, the Nazi guys who were broadcasting. An automated Nazi. Weather reports. Don't do that. I hate you. <laughs> and I'm invading. The, the, the troops were evacuated. <laughs> and basically the, the, uh, there, was a, there was now a Norwegian garrison there. The Nazis had mixed success trying to take out that in Unternehmen in Citronella in August of <laughs> 1942. Yeah, they're trying to treat them like a mosquito. It got a lemon a flavored operation. Yeah, Operation Lemon okay. Flavor. Operation Lavender. Op- you know, yeah. no, Nazis like their, their sorbet. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> their aromatherapy, you know, sorbet. They, they were uh. trying to attack the Norwegian garrison, and then some US ships came to their aid again in October. So it was kind of back and forth, back and forth. But the Norwegians maintained a presence on. Spitsbergen, I believe. Can't remember exactly where, but doesn't matter. Apparently, a big part of this operation was the, the Kriegsmarine, this sort of the Navy, German yeah. Navy, trying to show that they were actually yeah. useful. Oh, God, right. Because they hadn't really been. I mean, the they U-boats. They do a lot. The U-boats, the U-boats did, did a lot. But yeah. the, uh, the yeah. kind of, you don't hear about the big destroyer battles. No. And the Luftwaffe used the cover of all of the nonsense going on to install a, a meteorological station at Hopen. And... Um, it's funny, the, the, the airmen who were manning that were actually stuck there at the end of the war and had to surrender to some Norwegian fishermen in 1945. Oh, cool. Okay. Like, who are you? Oh, we're the Nazi wireless operators who've been here for three years. Uh, please bring us anywhere we else. I think they've forgotten about us. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Hitler killed himself in a bunker. That yeah. would explain it. In 1944, the USSR suggested that Svalbard might become a condominium uh, with Bear Island oh. coming under Soviet sovereignty. Which reminded me of the Kurils, you know, the Russians at the end of the war kind of going, grab, 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 what can we grab? Ah, Let's grab some stuff. Norway oddly did not agree to this uh, when it came in in later discussions. So in in 1947, that was flatly kind of ruled out. Okay. The word condominium just reminds me of the mess that we encountered in Vanuatu. Vanuatu, yeah. That's what I was thinking. The pandemonium or potpourri. The pandemonium, yes. Um, in in forty five, as as the war ended, uh, reconstruction of settlements and mining operations began resuming. Uh, Norway kind of was quicker to get things up to pre war production levels than the USSR and Artikugol. They reopened Grumont in nineteen forty seven and Pyramiden in nineteen fifty five, which we, we we haven't actually mentioned, but it's a cool name, the Pyramid. I think it's right beside Barentsburg. It's right beside the big Russian settlement anyway. So. I think it's it's a, it's a, a a few miles, a few kilometers from Barentsburg, but it, it was named uh because it's it sits under a pyramid shaped mountain which oh, okay. is, is kind of cool yeah. yeah yeah it's it's norwegian for the pyramid i think yes most northerly statue of lenin that's that's my favorite thing about it that's I'm it sticking to All it. right yep so norway joined nato in 1949 okay russia doesn't like that no russia has left the chat <laughs> yeah, russia, <laughs> russia and nato don't get along in this era or yep. in any era really and so that clause in the treaty, the Spitsbergen Treaty about not having military establishments, Russia kind of went, uh, okay, you've joined NATO, but you can't do anything Yeah, in Svalbard. Yeah. You can't be using that as a port or a weather yeah, station. it's neutral. It's neutral. Mm-hmm. So in 1958, Norsk Polar in Navigation wanted to build a private airport in New Elisund. Um and Russia was like, 
no, <laughs> you can't be building airports. We know what airports are for. So the Norwegian government opposed the construction and that didn't happen. The European Space Research Agency set up a tele- telemetry station in uh, Kungsfjord, which also upset the USSR, but I think that did go ahead. So USSR right at this point is basically saying you just can't do anything. You can't build anything, really. Any infrastructure. You know, you can you can mine yeah. all the coal you want, but uh, if you build any signals capability or communications capability. Dual, dual yeah. purpose stuff. Stuff yeah. that could be used for military. Yeah, dual purpose. Supposed to would be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 1961, Grumont was closed. That's one of the Artikugal uh, mines, just declining coal. Right. And there was an, an, an affair in 1961, a Caltex affair, where, where an American company was getting oil drilling exploration rights. And Artikugal felt they weren't being given those opportunities by the Norwegian government. So again, a bit of tension. Against the treaty there. Yeah. Um, although technically everyone should have a bite of the apple according to the treaty i think i think what it was was that norway's rules could not favor one country over another I think yeah. that was in the treaty so if like so mm-hmm. you know it's, it's not that like yeah. if i'm mining something you can literally just come and push me off it or we have to share it necessarily it's just that we there needed to have been a sort of a balanced process to determine which of us should get to mine the place yes and then the final thing i want to mention in this era is a uh, one of those events that has a much bigger impact than you would expect it to okay. have. The 1962 King's Bay Affair, which I think is also Kongsfjord, where the, the telemetry station was. Basically, there, there was, it, it, was, it was actually a defining political event in Norwegian history. All right. So I think it's one of those things where if you were to ask a Norwegian of a certain age, a, kind of like a Watergate or a, you know... Roy yeah. Keane in Saipan. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah. It sort of just precipitated things bigger than it looked like it would yeah uh, so on november 5th 1962 21 miners died in the mine in king's bay which was run by Storanorska, the, the the state mining operation all right this brought to 71 the deaths in king's bay in, in the last two decades so it's considered bad three and a half a year but wow. what happened was that the the commission of inquiry that was set up to look into it ended up pointing the finger somewhat at the industry minister kiel holler okay it became a big point of political pride that the Prime Minister, Einar Gerritsen, who had been Prime Minister for probably 15 years at this point, so, you know, he was he was a long-established kind of stalwart of Norwegian politics, and he was of the Socialist Party, and he basically insisted that his government didn't run the company. It owned the company, but it was run by its management, and that the minister was not directly responsible. While the non-socialist opposition found this as a unifying crunch point to call for Huller's sacking. And it became this big row where the opposition had never really been unified before. So the socialist hegemony was sort of unquestioned. Okay. And all the other parties came together to call for this sacking. And to kind of, it became sort of a crystallized this issue where people felt the Prime Minister wasn't really respecting Parliament because he had a pretty unassailable majority. So he wouldn't really answer questions. He wouldn't. People in Parliament felt that the executive was just ruling with a free reign. God, this is so tame compared to modern politics. (laughs) Yeah, well, it might have been crazier at the time. Basically, for the first time in his premiership since World War II, he had to answer to the opposition and it did not go well. He ended up resigning and was replaced by Conservative Bjorn Lung, 
shifting Norwegian politics for the rest of the century. Wow. Albeit Leung only was only prime minister for about a month, but there was an election and the non-socialist uh, parties were able to pull together and form some kind of coalition. Mm. You know, a whole era of Norwegian politics had just been the unquestioned socialist party. I, I, I bet he didn't think he was going to fall hard for Svalbard. Am I right? No, yeah. no. And no. I, you think it's probably a place most Norwegians don't really think about very much. And yet it became this pivotal point. And there's, there's a famous photograph of, uh, of Gerritsen leaving the lectern in the Storting as Yong Lung approaches it uh, to two crossing paths. And I think that's become kind of a... I'm led to believe that's quite a famous photograph. I'm not Norwegian. One for you Norwegian politics nerds. Yeah. Um, uh, open to uh, angry tweets telling me I'm putting too much emphasis on it because they're probably right. But uh, that's something I came across that was Svalbard specific, but had an impact on the, the, the mainland, as it were, which I think was amplified beyond what you'd expect. So, yeah, around this time, I guess we have um, a situation where we have competing interests still in Svalbard. So we have a relatively small Russian slash Ukrainian population in Berensburg and Pyramiden uh, mining operations and a relatively small Norwegian operation also focused on mining. But during the Cold War, Soviet Union retained about two thirds of the population on Svalbard with around a third of that being Norwegian. Uh, so the population around 1970 was was roughly 4,000 okay. people. And yeah, Pyramiden in particular was developed by the USSR as an example of the success of communism mm -hmm. because it was one of the very few Soviet cities that outsiders could very easily uh, visit. Oh, right. Well, very easily, inverted commas. Pyramiden was developed with a, uh, a theater, a library, art and music studios, a sports complex with a very expensive heated pool. Wow. And a canteen that was open 24 hours a day, a primary school. And I think, as Kieran mentioned at the top of the episode, the northernmost monument to Vladimir Lenin. Mm -hmm. During this period, Norway was also determined to maintain its settlements on Svalbard, which were dwindling. But as we will see throughout the next sort of 30 years or so, the fortunes of these two opposing sides will uh, go in different directions. So the Norwegian state stepped in in the early 1970s to save uh, Stor Norska, which was the coal mining operation in Longyearbyen, mm -hmm. after coal prices fell. That sort of kick-started the process of what's known as normalization, which was an effort to transform uh, Longyearbyen uh, from a company town to just a regular community uh, and something that was not based around one industry mining yeah yeah so in 1971 uh, Longyearbyen began moving towards local government with the establishment of the Svalbard Council for the Norwegian population although its power was very limited but it would expand in years to come in 1973 more than half the archipelago was protected through four national parks 14 bird sanctuaries and four nature reserves that's good stuff well, that's a that's change in in focus um, from previous centuries for sure yeah the proclamation by Norway of a 200 nautical mile economic zone in 1977 led to yet another dispute with the Soviet Union, uh, this time over maritime boundaries around Svalbard. Mm -hmm. uh, that issue was eventually put to bed in 2010 when they agreed uh, borders around the Barents Sea. But yeah, that, that would be a sticking point for many years to come. Uh, in 1975, Longyearbyen Airport officially opens. Uh, it's about five kilometers northwest of the town itself on the west coast of the archipelago, making it the northernmost airport in the world with scheduled public flights. Oh, wow. Northernmost everything, isn't it? It's pretty much, yeah. I mean, I mentioned the Extremities podcast earlier that he basically introduced is that series with 
uh, kind of a, a series of clips of him saying, you know, I'm now standing outside the northernmost uh, ATM in the world. I'm now standing outside the northernmost hospital in the world. I'm now standing outside the northernmost petrol station in the world and all this sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. yeah, basically anything that we talk about on Svalbard is essentially the northernmost thing of its t- of its kind in the world. In January 1989, a company known as SSD was established by Stor Norska, which was owned by the, by this point, as I mentioned, by the Norwegian government. It was given responsibility for public infrastructure and services in Longyearbyen, including healthcare, the fire department, kindergarten roads, uh, garbage disposal, all this sort of stuff. So they were still managing it through a private entity, but that private entity was government owned right and doing doing governmenty things yes so we're gradually inching towards kind of government mm. uh, oversight here um the 1990s saw a pretty large reduction in the russian activity on svalbard particularly after the collapse of the soviet union in 1991 mm. in 1993 ownership of that company that i mentioned ssd was taken over by the ministry of trade and industry so we now have direct control over Longyearbyen and the administration of the town uh, by the norwegian government in the same year, the Svalbard Council altered itself to allow different parties to run for election. Okay. So that's kind of interesting. In 1994, Russian schools were closed down and children and mothers were sent to the mainland, reducing the population of Barentsburg to 800 and of Pyramiden to 600. Okay. And then in 1996, on August 26th, disaster struck Svalbard when a Russian charter flight, Vnuvko Airlines Flight 2801, Charter flight carrying miners and their families heading to Barentsburg and Pyramiden crashed just outside of uh, Longyearbyen Airport, killing all 141 people on board. And there's a huge Wikipedia page about this incident, but um, you know it boils down to it was caused by a series of navigational commun- and communication errors. Very unusual for a plane to like it crashed into one of the mountains uh, outside Longyearbyen, I believe. Oh, oh boy! And it was a clear day, seemingly, and oh um, god. There was a series of different factors that basically all came together to um, to to kind of cause this disaster. And there was, for that reason, there was a lot of recrimination afterwards, I believe. There was a long and complicated battle over compensation, which wasn't settled until 1999. And, you know, was complicated, obviously, by the fact Who's that uh, Svalbard is, you yeah. know, a free economic zone and not technically part of any yeah. country and this sort of thing. So the um, charter flight, the airport, the exactly. Control. And that accident itself was a contributing factor in Arctic Google's closure of Pyramid entirely just two years after this uh, accident. Right. It remains the worst air disaster in Norwegian history oh, to wow. this day. So the town was completely closed in 1998 and has since remained largely abandoned, although most of its infrastructure and buildings are still in place. Mm, it's kind of a ghost town. Yeah, so I've heard that they're sort of um, starting to reopen parts yeah. of it now uh, to tourists. Yeah, I've read the same, yeah. Uh, since I believe around 2013. But after Pyramiden was closed, uh, the Russian focus on Svalbard then shifted to Varensburg. And that town and the coal mining operations based there never turned a profit, as far as I read. And still don't turn a profit today, but uh, it is considered important to the Russian military to have an outpost there, mm-hmm. even though it's not military in nature. Uh, it's still it's you know it's uh, it's considered an important part of their strategic efforts in the Arctic. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? Given how uh, yeah size they were by exactly. So between 1990 and 2011, the Russian and Ukrainian population fell from around two and a half thousand to about 370. Mm-hmm while the Norwegian population increased from about 1,000 to around 2,000. Okay. 
In 2001, the Svalbard Environmental Protection Act was passed and aimed at securing a continuous, nearly untouched natural environment on Svalbard, particularly in terms of wildlife, flora, fauna, and sort of cultural sites. Uh, and in 2002, the Long Yerbin Community Council was established, uh, replacing the Svalbard Council and assimilating the SSD. Love me a community council. Mm, that near enough brings us up to modern day. I have a little quote here from a book called Future North, The Changing Arctic Landscapes. It just touches a little bit on the efforts to promote Svalbard as a tourist uh, destination. So uh, this is a book edited by um, Yannicka Larsen and Peter Hammersam. And it says the newest tagline for Svalbard is next to the North Pole, which appears on postcards, tote bags, t-shirts, all the usual logo placements used to promote the branding of a landscape. The polar regions in general, but because of proximity to Europe, most especially the Arctic, have since at least the 18th century been posited as pure white primeval terra nullis, uncorrupted by human presence. None of that is completely true. The Arctic has been populated for thousands of years and pollution is sometimes unseen, but ever present. But one of the most widely bought tourist guides for the region, Lonely Planet Norway, contains within its first two paragraphs about Svalbard a list of time-honored descriptors. Dreamed, wondrous, dramatic, vast, forbidding, elemental, Endless, perpetual, All right. deeper, wilderness, and epic. Uh, and the list is capped with a declaration that travel to Svalbard is to cross the remote frontier of the mind. Good lord. If travel to Svalbard is no longer the terrestrial equivalent of reaching outer space, it at least can be marketed as a conceptual outland. Yeah. So it, it is mean, quite far away. <laughs> it is quite far away. You guys saw those photos that um, Roxana Kramer sent us yeah. to put on the show notes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like it's a pretty otherworldly kind of landscape. I I, I, I won't criticize Lonely Planet too much for amping it up. Personally, and again, no angry letters, but I I kind of thought pharaohs were a bit more, I guess, interesting visually. Like it, it's the Arctic, but it's yeah. quite bleak yeah. for that. Whereas the pharaohs has a weird yeah. magical kind of uh, Avatar Pandora thing going on with like. Sure. Yeah, waterfalls into the sea and stuff like which is pretty pretty amazing stuff. Would you guys be interested in visiting Svalbard? In in summer, yeah. With a rifle. Okay. I mean, there's other places I would visit first. <laughs> you know. I'd 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 have a sniff about. Okay. But you know, fair enough. I'd probably probably have other places I'd prefer to be, to be honest. Alright. The beaches aren't great. Well. No, definitely not. Uh yeah, so in two thousand nine Spitzbergen had a population of around two thousand seven hundred, uh, of which four hundred and twenty three were Russian. Uh, or Ukrainian, 10 were Polish, 322 were non-Norwegians living in Norwegian settlements from Thailand, Sweden, Denmark, Russia, and Germany. But yeah, Spitsbergen is among the safest places on earth, apparently, uh, with basically no crime. Which is, I suppose, not not that surprising. Like, you, what yeah. are you going to do? You rob a TV and then... It was Torben! Yeah, like <laughs> I saw him. As yep, you, someone comes sure. to visit your house and you're like, "There's that's my TV. Yeah. <laughs> I have a little bit on the economy here. So um, I guess the economy is dominated by coal mining, tourism research, which we've talked about previously. As of 2007, which was the latest figures I could get, there were around 500 people working in the mining sector, just over 200 working in tourism, and around 100 working in education. Uh, There are very few privately owned homes, uh, and most people there live in company-owned housing. And I believe there was a recent avalanche in Longyearbyen, which made some of the housing have to be sort of abandoned or or, or okay. moved, which has mm-hmm. kind of caused a housing squeeze along with increased tourism. And, and, and Kieran made a point to me that the 
town kind of has nowhere to go. It's sort of in a valley. Exactly. Oh, right. It's in a valley between two mountains. Yeah. 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 So So you can't just build more suburbs. Yeah, you can't sprawl, really. (laughs) You can go further down the valley or into the ocean. Uh, It's pretty much where you can go. Uh, I also have a table here of guests arriving in Longyearbyen. So in 2008, there was around 40,000. Then in 2014, there was around 50,000. And in 2018, they uh, tipped over 70,000. So tourists. Yeah, tourists per year, I believe. They're increasing at a rate of around 7% every year. It's it's becoming very popular these days. Uh, And there's also a company called Svalbard Bury, I believe, which uh, is a brewery which was established in... Northernmost brewery. Yeah, 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 northernmost brewery (laughs) in the world, uh, established in 2015. And 16% of the water used for uh, brewing their beers is thawed from ice in uh, from the 2,000-year-old Burgerbreen Glacier. I guess that's kind of cool. Uh, so it is cool. cool. Is it yeah. hygienic? Um, I don't know if it is. I'd say it's the I nicest guess, water that... I mean, it's been frozen for... Yeah, most water comes from glaciers eventually, doesn't it? Uh, you know, at the, <laughs> Ultimately. at the start of all of it. A lot of it does anyway. I don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah, and on um, on religion... Most of the population, as you might expect, is Christian, associated with the uh, Church of Norway. Mm-hmm. And uh, Catholics on the archipelago are pastorally served by the territorial prelature of Tromso. Good old Tromso. So, uh, I b- believe that the ch- there's a church, I think in Longyearbyen, which is, of course, the northernmost functioning church, church in the world. In the world, yeah. I think there yeah. might be one in, in maybe Arkhangelsk or somewhere that claims to be... Like, I think somewhere Russia owns has a church, but I don't think it's functioning. Uh, right. And then there is a chapel, a Russian Orthodox chapel in one of the Russian settlements, which I don't think it has a regular priest, but it exists. Um, so there's a little, little bit of nor- northernmost churchiness going on They have an, an irregular priest. He's uh, there all the time, but he's just a bit off. Speaking of biblical references, um, there is a Noah's Ark of types in, in, uh, in Svalbard. Yep. Yeah. Which is called the Crop Trust. And so um, I had a little chat with, with Kieran about this, and then I, I have a few more things to say. So I heard about this quite some time ago in an episode of, I think, 99% Visible published an episode of of the podcast Endless Thread, which was called The Vault. And it was all about this uh, this place. So I've been kind of itching to look at Svalbard for, since I heard this, and this is a great opportunity to talk about it. So um, Kieran talked a little bit about this scientific project. The Seed Vault collects seeds from all around the world and it stores them in the permafrost in Svalbard. So any nation can come and place seeds in the Seed Vault. It's a record of plants that have existed in case anything happens to the ones that are growing There was a precursor that started in 1984, which was the Nordic Gene Bank. And this utilised the permafrost in mine number three. In 1996, Stola Norska closed the mine, told the men to down tools, and mine number three has been left exactly as it was on that day when the men down tools. That stalls Nordic flora, so it stalls... um, the seeds from Nordic plants. It was a pan-Nordic corporation, which then expanded greatly and became the seed bank that we know today, but a separate enterprise. 
it also has um, the Arctic World Archive, which is a data storage facility. You can put items on digital film and they're also placed in a cork room and will be there for the next 50 or so years. You can visit the Seed Bank virtually on uh, croptrust.org, which is kind of cool. They have a really nice, nice. panoramic um, guided tour. Uh, it looks really spooky. I don't, I don't know if you guys play um, Goldeneye as young people. I, I played it, yeah. First-person shooter in the Nintendo 64. Of course. You know, there's kind of yeah. uh, Siberian insta- yeah, installations yeah. or Arctic installations. It kind of has that look about it, a big imposing um, metal facade. It looks like the, the, the fin of like a buried spaceship cast yes. in a glacier it looks like the yeah. the, the back end of yeah. one or something it's exactly it gives that. you the impression of some some vast depth underneath it or something it, it does yeah it's it's pretty interesting to look at uh, it, it's heavily secured and there's a great quote on the website about how there's unofficial security provided by polar bears which i think is nice <laughs> yeah it's about minus five degrees in the mountain and um interesting norwegian law prohibits the importing of gm crops so none are stored here right so all of the ah. crops are naturally occurring crops and it's minus 18 degrees in the vault and buck and seeds from from north korea lie next to seeds from south korea seeds from you know russia lie next to seeds from the u.s kind of no real wow. uh, political uh distinction so an, an important thing about this this kind of safety deposit box of for seeds is that there have been withdrawals made or at least one major withdrawal which, you know, you kind of mm. think, well, it's nice to have all these seeds in the ground, but like, come on, there's never going to be some kind of major apocalyptic world event that would wipe out the, the seeds or the crops. Yeah. Yes. Um, so basically, the, again, this is from the, the uh, Crop Trust website. Only the depositors can take the seeds out, which I didn't realize. And to date, only one depositor has done this. In 2015, the International Centre for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas, ICARDA, lost access to its gene bank, which had been in Aleppo, Syria, for some oh, reason. Right. So they were doing their own research and they had a seed bank of their own, but they it couldn't be accessed because of the civil war. So they withdrew some of their samples of wheat and lentils, chickpeas and other uh, crops that did well in dry areas, transferred them to their other sites in Morocco and Lebanon, and have since been able to redeposit many of the seeds back into the vault, right. having grown the crops and harvested the next generation so you know it's it's had a useful life mark do you have anything on sports or language uh look no i mean the, the nationalities luke mentioned the, the people who are those nationalities speak those languages and i did i did try to find sport but there's actually a single sports club in svalbard so i actually don't know how they do competitive sports of any kind it's it's like there's just one club and they do like they do ground yeah. ball and all these. I think that's like for slightly older people and so on. I did. I did see that there's a very there's quite a young population there, which is interesting. Uh, so I guess more of them do sports than not. There's very few people over over the age of sixty, I believe. Yeah, and um, I guess one thing to mention is the the polar bear thing. Yeah, like you, yeah, you know, you're required by law to carry a, a rifle outside of the normal settlements. After we recorded, I had a chance to interview someone who had firsthand experience with this topic. Sonia Murto is a PhD student in the University of Stockholm, where she's studying Arctic warming, and she actually spent a period of time living in Svalbard a few years back, and as a result, this rule directly applied to her. In Longebuen, you can carry a gun, but you don't have to, like, you don't have to use it. In the supermarket, there is, like, 
places where you put your gun when you go shopping. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you go hiking, you have to bring your gun. We had to have a shooting practice before. Then you got the license to actually carry a gun. We had two guns and two flare guns. So you're always supposed to first shot the flare gun before you shot the gun. And Sonia also got to see up close why such precautions are important. I think you'll find this story quite interesting. In Pyramiden, I was with my German friends and a friend from Finland visiting. And that was like the last trip in autumn before they closed. And that was when this polar bear came and said hi to us. Right. What's it like to meet a polar bear? <laughs> well, when you're in the situation, you think like, this is the way I'm going to die. All right. We hiked to a small blue lake. All the guides were saying like, yeah, the polar bears on the glacier just a few days ago, they went and walking towards the town, towards Pyramiden. Mm-hmm. We were like, oh shit, we didn't get any picture. And my friend was also like, I don't want to leave from here before I see a polar bear. I want to have it on a picture. There was a small hut. You can use all the huts that you find anywhere in Svalbard. We left our stuff there and go down to the valley. And then it's like getting a bit darker, like we should go back now. And then suddenly one of us was like saying, oh, there's a polar bear. I was like, no, 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 come on, there's no polar bears. And then, well, there was a polar bear running towards us. And there was a big, like, large smelt water from the glacier that we had to cross. And one of the guys got really scared and he was just jumping into the river, like, all wet. And then we go back to the hut and we, we see the polar bear coming closer. It's like middle of the river. We already crossed it. And then the side gets so bad that we lose it. We actually lose it. And that was really terrible. And uh, I was having a gun, so I had like my responsibility to kind of shoot if needed. We go into the, the hut and we're like, we couldn't close the door. The door was kind of broken. So I kind of made a, so a lot of like planks, whatever I found, leaning on the door so we can hear when the polar bear comes in just packed there like didn't know what to do and my friend fell asleep immediately I guess she just was like oh you know about polar bears you can deal with this I mean I feel safe but all of others we five we were like anyone sleeping no (laughs) and yeah it was really like scary knowing like the polar bears maybe going around the hut now and maybe coming in soon but we survived the night and in the morning I got up to the highest point where we were staying and I saw the polar bear down in the valley sleeping I think and then we packed our stuff and walked back to Pyramiden. There is a hotel on Pyramiden. I... And we told the, the guy, there is the polar bear back in the Blue Lake hut. Okay. Yeah, that's good. We just send a few buses there so the tourists have something to see. So for him, it was like, you know, daily stuff. But for us, it was like, uh, okay, we had no connection. No one could have known that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, afterwards, it's, it's funny to talk about it. When my friend talks about the friends and he's like, oh, that's so cool. Do you have a picture? Like, uh, sure, when the polar bear is chasing us, we ask him to stop, pose, and then we continue. Of course, we have a picture. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> so, yeah, that was an interesting experience. It's not as if everybody's kind of gun happy. People don't like to kill polar bears, obviously, because they're endangered. Sure. But I, th- I think the way I, I, I read it was if it comes down to you or the polar bear, then that's, you know, yeah, you're going to put yourself first. Yeah, no, and I heard that they sometimes have to shoot a polar bear if it wanders through town more than two or three times. Yeah. They have to, yeah, for the safety of the town. But it's quite it's quite rare, is, is yeah. my understanding yeah. anyway. And it generally makes makes kind of headline news when it does happen, like if there's an attack or a polar bear has to be fended off. I, I, I might just say two, two little nuggets of, of folklore I did pick up were that in Longyearbyen, Father Christmas lives in Mineshaft number two. 
uh, which is what? a decommissioned mine shaft. So that's that's where he okay. lives. Obviously, the uh, the people of Robin Yamey in might might disagree with that's horrific claim. He lives in an abandoned mine yeah. shaft. Yep. Holy God! Okay, I mean it's handy. And there's also a big festival when the sun returns called uh, Sol Festuca, because of course there is. <laughs> the tenth week of the year, you just go crazy and uh, yep. have, have a party yep. on around the eighth of March or so, which uh, is when the sun finally hits the town. So it's been a little nice. bit bright, bright for a while, but uh, that's kind of yep. kind of cool when you actually get direct sunlight for the first time in like twelve weeks or something. It's uh, yeah, you'd appreciate it. There was a local tradition I read about, which is more tradition than a, a festivity, uh, but it's about leaving your shoes outside, and it comes from the coal mining heritage of the town. Even though that's less and less kind of oh, thing yeah. that they do, because there used to be so much coal dust in people's shoes, they would all ha- always have to leave them outside. So apparently, that's that's still a thing. All right. So, fascinating place. Yeah. Okay, I think we've pretty much covered it. Yeah. We've covered it like snow. Indeed. And uh, thank you again to John Fitzpatrick for his suggestion and for everybody who voted for this episode. As we mentioned, this is our last episode of season four. Thank you for, for sticking with us. There's been a lot of life in this season. There has. So what, we've had two country moves and a pandemic. I think at least two job moves as mm. well throughout this season. Yeah, all three of us, I think, yeah. Uh, we'll be taking a hiatus for a couple months after this episode releases. But um, yeah, we will see you again very soon with some new content. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, locations that you think we should be covering, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I would just like to thank specifically for this episode. I, I spoke with, obviously, Kieran, Kieran McDonough. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, also, Sonia Murto talked to me about some research she did there. And Roxana Kramer sent us some photos, which you can look at on the website. Yep. We'll include those in the show notes too. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, as ever, you can find all the links to stuff that we talked about in this episode in the show notes, which should be available in your podcast app. You can also find links to different clips and music and things like that that we've used in this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search 80 days. You can also find us on social media, uh, on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can connect with us directly via email at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. And you can support us on Patreon if you like what we do at patreon.com forward slash 80dayspodcast. Links to all those things will be, again, in the show notes. Joe, do you want to tell us a little bit about where people can find you on the internet? If they go to timetoburn.com, they will find things about me. Not necessarily very up-to-date things, but things that are mostly true. All right. And Mark? Uh, you find me on Twitter at MarkBroyle86. You can find me on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly or at my website, LukeJKelly.com. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next season. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.